Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 4 of his award-winning podcast, which has yet to win any awards. Right, hey everybody, long time no see or hear. This is going to be my catch-up episode, because last episode I spent the entire time talking about Gen Con games, what was going to be at the show, and all of that, and now, as it happens, I didn't go to Gen Con, so I don't really think I'm going to do much of a Gen Con wrap-up, I don't really have much more to say, but it is now time to get back on track and try to cover the topics that I had skipped last month. So, let's start out with what Jen and I have been recently playing, although I am sorry to say I am not going to have much on this particular topic, because... About midway through the month of July and all the way through the month of August, Jen and I got hit with some kind of absolutely insanely powerful flu super bug thing. I have no idea what it was. Jen likes to think it's actually SARS, and it somehow ended up down here because it just really, really knocked us on our butts. I mean, Jen actually lost her voice for, I think, about a week and a half, and we're still dealing with the aftermath. Even now, I'm still having like fairly major dizzy spells upon occasion. Jen is in England right now trying to get a bunch of glasswork done while coughing up lungfuls of... Phlegm, and I, you know, one can only, it's, it's getting to be hard to remember a time when this was not with us, when this was not the way of our life. But I am certain, since we are both young, healthy people, that we will ultimately make a full recovery, hopefully in time for Essen in early October, because we'll both be in Germany for that. So, all that said, we have not been playing that many games recently. It's been kind of a bummer, but you know, for several weeks there, just neither of us really felt like playing at all. You may have noticed I had actually a big drop-off in productivity on the show, although I tried to keep going. But all that said, I do have, actually, I think I'm going to talk about two games that we have played recently. One of them I've already done a run-through for. One of them I've done the run-through for, and it's going to go up live today. And I think it's interesting to talk about them because they are two very similarly themed, almost exactly the same themed Euro-style games that play radically differently. And they're both, on, as of today, on Kickstarter at the same time. So the games are called Primetime and The Networks. Primetime from designer Elad Goldstein and The Networks from Gil Hova. And these are both games that are all about players taking on the role of a network executive trying to line up the perfect spate of shows to get the most viewers, which are basically the game's version of victory points. And the interesting thing is both these games came out within a month of each other on Kickstarter. And in fact, you know, they're both vying for your backer dollar even as we speak. And so I reckon 
a lot of people are going to ask me, you know, since I've played both of them, which one should I get? Which one is the right one? And that's a tough one to answer because, quite frankly, I think they're both excellent games. They both really capture the theme. They, you know, the theme really comes to life. But they both work in very, very different ways. Now, in a nutshell, the biggest difference is Primetime is a very heavy economic Euro simulation with a ton of stuff going on. When you're actually trying to do your lineup, you're actually trying to do a lineup for five nights of a week, putting shows on every single night, trying to build those shows, not only with stars, but also with directors and actors and you know, writers. And there are lots of different types of audiences. You could target men, you could target women, you could target teens, you can target the elderly. Uh, and so... and. There's a lot more direct competition between players. In fact, actually, the game can become very cutthroat as I, you know, you can see that I have lined up the perfect Wednesday night and I'm set to really rake in the ratings. So what do you do? You launch an ad campaign that moves all the viewers from th uh, Wednesday night to Thursday night to go watch your show. And all the work I did to make my show a big success just falls apart. And in fact, it's so bad the show ends up getting canceled. And so, you know, I, I mean, you know, and that could be a really crushing blow for me that you, as my competitor, can dish out. So it's a very heavy game. There's a ton of moving parts. There is a lot to keep track of. You know, it's up there with the um, Vito Lasarda games like, you know, your Vinos's and, um, and, and stuff like that. So that's the one game. That's primetime. And the other game, the networks is a is kind of a more midweight or even kind of light to midweight. You know, I mean, on um, the board game geek weight scale, I'd say that primetime is probably a three point eight, three point nine. You know, close to a four, not quite a four, but getting close. The networks, I would say, is more like a two point five, not even quite a level three. Not you know, just barely hitting midweight. And I don't say that's a bad thing. It's definitely a lighter game. It's much easier to pick up for that game. You're only scheduling one night, but you can put on up to three shows. You have three time slots, so you're you're working on three shows at a time. While in prime time, you're working on five shows at a time. And really, the crux of the difference between these two games is in networks. My show does not steal viewers from your show. Everybody is basically... We already have our own potential viewer base, and we're just trying to put on the best shows we can to get the most viewers, i.e. points. And it doesn't matter whether you know I have a really big smash hit um, in my 8 o'clock slot. It does not prevent you from being too, able to also have a smash hit at 8 o'clock. So in that way... Primetime is very aggressive, very interactive. Players are really getting all up in each other's grill. But in the networks, it's very much a live-and-let-live game. Um, it's hands-off. In fact, it's almost a multiplayer solitaire game because you can spend the majority of your focus on, right, I'm just trying to make the best lineup for me. Good for you if you make your own lineup, but I'm just trying to, make, I'm just trying to get my shows on the air as best I can. Now, that said, the networks does have a little bit of interaction. There is, it's, um, both games feature a card draft. Although Primetimes is a bit heavier because it's an auction where you're actually bidding to try and get all the latest, hottest shows and the latest, hottest uh, personnel and, and all that stuff. And, you know, and, and, the, the, and it's actually a really unique, fresh 
take on auctions. You can see my run-through to learn more. In the networks, it's just first-come, first-served. Hey, there's a show or an actor or, you know, a, or an event that I want to grab. I'll just grab it. And I grabbed it first before you get to grab it. And maybe that's a show that I saw that you really want because you're trying to focus on science fiction shows. And I don't care about that much, but I'll grab it just to keep you from getting your genre bonus on science fiction. So there's a little bit of kind of a bumping heads, but nowhere near as to the level as primetime, which can get very, very aggressive. Now, that said, the networks also features a uh, selection of interactive cards that if you want, you can shuffle into the uh, the network deck, which is kind of an event deck. And so if you put those interactive cards in, you do get more opportunities to like you know steal stars from each other and stuff like that. But even still, even with those elements in place, the level of aggression in networks is minuscule compared to primetime. So, I gotta say, they are both excellent games. They are both very thought-provoking. They are full of very challenging, tough, and fun decisions to make every step of the way. And if you are trying to decide which one to get, if you're interested in the subject matter at all, well, I think it's going to come down to what do you value? Do you want a heavy, aggressive, longer game? Or do you want a lighter, more um, live-and-let-live, shorter game? If you want the former, you want primetime. If you want the latter, then you want the networks. They're both great games. Jen and I enjoyed them both. Although, ultimately, I, I, you know, full disclosure, the networks is the one that I think we want to come back to because, no big surprise, Jen and I are multiplayer solitaire superfans. We are the ultimate Care Bears, and we very much appreciate the fact that the networks allowed us to just live and let live. Everybody's trying to make their best uh, lineups not necessarily at the expense of our opponents. But I know a lot of people out there would find networks just a little bit too friendly, a little bit too Care Bear, and they want to have a, a little bit more of a, uh, of a ratings war. And if that's what you're looking for, primetime is what you should be checking out. So... There's a few other games we played over the last months, but you know most of them I've already done run-throughs for. There's a few more that I will be doing run-throughs for this month. So I think I'll just stop right there at the recently played, because I did think that was interesting, that within weeks of each other. These two games that have both been independently in development for quite a while, um, you know, and they didn't really know about each other. It's just kind of this weird coincidence that they both happened to hit at the exact same time. And so, for folks who are wondering which way you should go, well, hopefully that can help you out a little bit. And that, folks, I'm going to stop right there. That is what has been played recently. Now, let's move on in just a moment to new games of interest. Okay, welcome back. Let's get to those new games of interest. And unlike my recently played games, just because Jen and I were sick did not stop people from announcing new exciting games. So I've got a long list here. I've got two months of games to talk about that have made it onto my games of interest geek list on BoardGameGeek. So let's just jump right into it with the expansions. Oh my goodness, the expansions. Let's see. Recently... Expansions for Nations, Galaxy Trucker, Russian Railroads, and Theseus the Dark Orbit were announced. I believe all of these are going to be at Essen 2015, and I want them all, my precious. Oh, they all sound fantastic. Uh, for Nations, you've got Nations Dynasties, which among other things, 
apparently adds like 12 new ancient nation states to choose from, each with special unique powers. I think that's right. Is it 12? That's mind-boggling to me. That just there is going to um, you'll open up the game so much for what is already a game Jen I dearly love. It's in my top 10 of all time, Nations Dynasties. Galaxy Trucker Missions is an interesting one because... Uh, CGE recently put Galaxy Truckers onto you know digital formats. You know, on you can play it on your your iPad and stuff like that. And apparently, when they made the the translation, they added new functionality to the video game version. Uh, most notably, this notion of being able to go on specific missions. And apparently, they were so well received, they have now retrofitted the system into the board game. So, for folks who don't have an iPad and aren't going to be playing Nation Galaxy Truckers that way, you can now um, you know get them in your. I, I just think that's really really cool. Um, you know, particularly for people who are always worried that you know these digital integrations of board games spells the end of the hobby. I, I love this as an example of no, it actually just expands the hobby. Look, new stuff that came in the video game can now get added to the analog game. That's that's awesome. Galaxy Trucker Missions, that is. Um, Russian Railroads, German Railroads is a very, very silly name because, appa- I mean, I, I, I guess you got to go with it. It's almost kind of a shame they called the thing Russian Railroads when its first expansion is set entirely in Germany. So you end up with this weird name. I have to admit, I haven't looked at this at all. I just know it's a must get because Russian Railroads is fantastic. So anything new for it is definitely worth seeking out. And then Theseus the Hunters is... This is one I'm actually, I have to admit, a little bit nervous about. Because Jen and I really love Theseus the Dark Orbit. Even though it is a very aggressive, in-your-face battle game. uh, In large part because most of the factions that come with the base game are... Really not that mean. And in fact, Jen doesn't have to play... Jen can play as the scientists or the gray aliens who are both sort of pacifist factions. Um, Not that they don't necessarily have some tricks up their sleeves. And really, at the game, even when players are directly attacking each other, um, you know, nobody's actually getting killed. If I successfully attack Jen, that just means I score points, and we're just in a race to score the most points. So that's actually very cool that even in this fairly aggressive game, um, you know, Jen and I can enjoy it because it doesn't feel thematically it's fairly aggressive, but in actual terms of raw gameplay, it's not. The Hunters faction, however, worries me a bit, this new one, because it sounds much more aggressive. I mean, this now features, hey, I know you worked really, really hard to, you know, to put in that, you know, the, those cameras that you're using to keep track of our movement. And, you know, it was a tough thing. You really had to think hard and, you know, it took you several rounds to actually get them built and you feel really proud of them and you're really great. Hey, you know what the hunters will do? They'll just steal them. How about that? That is a level of aggression far above and beyond what is in the base game. And so, while I definitely want to check it out, I am worried that it might be a bit too mean for me and Jen. We'll see. Um, Still, I'm I'm glad the game, because the game itself is fantastic, is continuing to get support with Theseus the Dark Orbit, The Hunters. All right. Now, let's stop talking about expansions. Let's actually talk about some games. Uh, First up would be Automobiles from designer David Short, who last gave us Planes. And just to get out of the way, yes, this is the end of the, the Oddball trilogy from AEG Games that started with Trains, then went with Planes, and is now moved on to Automobiles. Even though the three games have absolutely nothing to do with each other, other than the fact that they share um, a their logo shares the same font and their box covers has the same basic graphic layout, but they're radically different games. 
And I'm not saying I want to pick up automobiles because I want to complete the set. That's not it at all. Um, I want to pick this up because it is a bag builder. And if you remember last year, 2014, Shaw saw several really cool games coming out that um, are all about bag building. Uh, we absolutely loved Orleans, and King's Pouch was very cool too. And so I'm excited to see another bag builder come out and see what new it does with the circumstance. Now, the game itself is apparently all about like um, Grand Prix-style race car building, and you know the bag represents, I think, your pit crew or something like that, as, as the car is going around and you're trying to build the car up and keep it running and stuff like that. I, I haven't really looked into it too, too much, just based on the pedigree of the designer, because David Short has made some fantastic games that we really enjoy, um, and the fact that it is a bag builder, which is a, a relatively new offshoot genre that we're really enjoying. To me, it's a it's pretty much a sight unseen. We'll pick it up if I can. And it's coming out at Essen. So far, all these things, I believe, are getting their big launches at Essen. Next up is Lunar Architects. This one's interesting. I think it's going to be going on Kickstarter later in the year, like around November, something like that. This is what I'm led to understand. And the interesting thing about this is, this is a game where players are architects trying to design the perfect moon base, the perfect lunar base. And that's a cool... I mean, I, I haven't actually seen that theme before, and it sounds really neat. I like that. But what I like a lot more is this game is a very loving homage to Matthias Kramer's Glenn Moore. And in fact, you could think of this very much, very directly as Glenn Moore 2. Glenn Moore in space! Because it is using a lot of the exact same mechanisms. You know, the, the whole rondelle to grab your tiles, and when you place tiles in your area, it activates it, you know, it, the tile activates itself, plus all adjacent tiles, and you try to create these really brilliant combo strings. Glenmore is a fantastic game. It is absolutely amazing. It's also a game that's kind of harder to get. Um, you know, never really got a very wide printing, and it's been out of print for a while. And the interesting thing is, the developers of Lunar Architects actually contacted Matthias Kramer and consulted with him and said, hey, you know, this is what we're kind of doing. I mean, are you cool with it? What do you think of the designs? And while Matthias Kramer has not put in enough time to actually be considered a, a co-designer of this game, I mean, you have to kind of consider it because, you know, they are, they are lovingly recreating and updating and enhancing his design. And he has been kind of almost a silent partner, um, which I, I think is very, very cool. And so I'm very, very excited about it because I love Glenmore. And while I don't think this is going to replace Glenmore, it has a lot of really cool new elements in it as well. Plus, I just think it's great for people who've won Glenmore for quite a while and have never been able to get it because it seems like... Um, who published Glenmore? Aaliyah and Rio Grande Games. They've just decided, well, we're never going to put out anymore, even though there's a lot of people out there who would love it. Well, you're in luck. Lunar Architects is on the way. Next up, Burano. And now this is a new design from a Taiwanese game publisher. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the publisher, the name of the designer. They are all Taiwanese. But I've, I've seen lots of pictures of it, and I've, I've read the basics of it, and it looks really, really cool. Now, in part, Jen and I are, would both be very interested in this game because Burano Island was, I think, by far Jen's absolute favorite thing we got to experience when we went to Venice many, many years ago. I mean, and that's a big deal because Venice is an amazing place. There's so many things to see there. But Jen came away falling in love with Burano uh, because it's, it's such a beautiful, wonderful, peaceful, charming little enclave. It's, a, it's an island that is famous for its lace works. And, you know, Jen doesn't really care. I mean, she can appreciate the artistry that goes into fine lace. But yes, she doesn't care about that. But, like I said, she loved, loved, loved um, 
um, the island itself. And so we're interested in the thematic subject, but then on top of that, the game itself seems very, very cool because you're helping to build up and develop the island of Murano with their famous, very colorful houses. And you do that by placing these house cubes on the board all over the place, but you can stack them on top of each other, put multiples next to each other, and put colorful roofs on top of them. So you're actually kind of building it in 3D. Which is very, very cool. I'm very curious to see it and compare it to Murano, which came out last year and ironically had a picture of Murano, the, the, the town, on the cover. Now um, we'll finally get to go to Murano and cannot wait to give it a go. And I believe that one's getting a launch at Essen as well. Let's see. Next up, we have Peleponese the Card Game. And you know what? You have me at the title. Jen, I love Pelopines. It's in my top 10 favorite games of all time. And now the designer, Bernd Eisenstein, is making a card game version of it. I don't know what's new. I don't care. I must has it. Must has it. Pelopines, the card game. Um, you know, great, great auction game, building ancient civilizations. I've talked about it at length. It's the first live playthrough I ever did was for Pelopines. So, a card game version of it. Can't wait to see what's new. Next up, Runebound 3rd Edition and Fury of Dracula 3rd Edition. These were both announced at Gen Con 2015 from uh, Fancy Flight. They're finally, these games that have been out of print for years and have commanded ridiculously high prices on the aftermarket. Um, and I'm happy for it because I actually sold my Fury of Dracula 2nd Edition for a pretty penny. And I've been thinking for years about selling my Runebound. I have a big collection of Runebound stuff, but I love it so much I don't want to get rid of it. But anyway, both of the games are finally getting reprints. And the interesting thing is, there are several changes and additions and updates and tweaks that are being made to the core gameplay of these two modern classics. And uh, so that's actually really, really interesting. I'm very excited about some of the new stuff in Runebound because you know the combat in Runebound Second Edition was fine. It's just a it's just a, a dice fest, but it's one of the better dice fests out there. If you got to have a dice fest, Runebound did it pretty well. Runebound Third Edition replaces that with this very interesting. Oh, hey. It's okay, Dob. It's okay. Someone's at the door, folks. Why don't you hold for a second? I'll be right back. Okay, we're back. That was a very nice young Estonian couple who were vacationing in Malta and wanted to stop by and say hello. So we had a nice time. I got some excellent chocolate. Chocolate? full of little tiny blueberries, which is surprisingly excellent. Oh my gosh, so good. But anyway, I now honestly don't remember where I was. I think I was just talking about Runebound, third edition. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. I was just saying how the new Runebound keeps a lot of the same classic game, but changes combat. And right, that's what I was a bit worried about, because I like the idea of it. The combat has become a more interesting tactical exercise with lots of different options, because you have all these different round chips that are two-sided that represent different moves you can do in combat, and you basically kind of toss them all out like you're rolling the bones sort of thing, um, or you know, like casting runes and whatever they land. That's what you can do, but you can flip tiles and do all kinds of special stuff. So that seems really cool. I like that. But what I'm worried about is that unlike regular Runebound, where you're fighting against the game, here you're fighting against another player because another player takes on the role of the monster and has to make decisions on the behalf of the monster to try to kill you. And I'm a bit nervous that Jen and I will not enjoy that, which is too bad. Although, if that's the case, that means we'll just stick with our Runebound 2.0 instead of the Runebound 3.0, a third edition that is coming. And then the other one was Fury of Dracula third edition, which 
I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm fairly pessimistic about it. You can see the run-through I've already done for Fury of Dracula to see all the problems we had with it, even though we loved the core game and wanted to love it. But it's, it's, it was just so overwrought, it just, we just couldn't, couldn't keep playing it, so we got rid of it. And the thing about the third edition is, supposedly, it streamlines some elements of the game. A big part of that is combat. So that's very, very interesting. And my hope is that means if combat is streamlined, maybe when one player uh, has to, in a two-player game, has to control all four hunters, it won't be quite so overwrought and overburdened by having to keep track of a million different special powers and a million different special items that each character has, which is what really killed Fury of Dracula for us. So I'd be willing to bet this one won't work for us any more than the original one, but fingers crossed for the third edition of Fury of Dracula. Both those, I think, are coming later in the year, not at Essen, but Essen, but after Essen. Anyway, and then the other thing that Fantasy Flight um, announced was Warhammer Quest, which, I'll be honest, I don't really know anything about. I guess it's a cooperative fantasy adventure card game based on, uh, you know, the Warhammer license, and more specifically, the Warhammer Quest, which was a very popular, well-beloved board game dungeon crawl from the 80s, I guess, or maybe the early 90s. I've never played it, I've never seen it, so I don't have any great love for the subject matter, even though I know a lot of people do, and so a lot of people are very excited about this. I'll just uh, list it as something I'm interested in, mostly because I know it will have a lot of really great Fantasy Flight polish, and as a cooperative game, maybe it'll be something Jan and I enjoy. Who knows? For Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game is its full name, actually. But now, on to one I'm very excited about, super stoked over, is Pursuit of Happiness, which is going to be coming from Artipia Games, and is designed by David Chirkop, who is a personal friend of mine. He is a guy, a young guy, who lives here in Malta. He's a Maltese game designer. His previous game, he co-designed with uh, another guy named Yannick, was... And then we held hands, which I've done a run-through for, and that was a brilliant game. Now, and to be fair, that was David and Yannick, and this one, I believe, is David working by himself. But he is... I've never played the game. I've never even seen it, because he lives on a different island than me. But we have talked about it. He's described to me, and I love the idea of it. A, A good, interesting, weighty... Euro-style game experience that is all about trying to live the perfect life. You know, having the pursuit of happiness. And I love that subject matter. It's so wonderful in CV, and I would love to see a bigger, richer, heavier game that tackles the same topic. Plus, I, David's a really clever guy. He's got really good design chops. So, And you know, Artipia picked it up, and Artipia makes really, really good choices about the games they publish. So I am just all kinds of excited about Pursuit of Happiness. Couldn't be more excited. Uh, and then we come to Inhabit the Earth from designer Richard Brees. He's taking a break from the Keedom games. This is not a Keyflower sequel or expansion. This is a whole new game about prehistoric animals um, multiplying, evolving, and thriving. And it's just absolutely lovely. Particularly because, well, this year we loved evolution and really wanted to keep it, but it turned out it was such a in-your-face, cutthroat game, which, and it was, which was entirely thematically appropriate. I do not disparage the designers for making that choice. It was entirely the right thing, and the game is so brilliant. One of the best games of the year. Easily. So smart. It's design. But, and you know, and Jen, I got a real taste for the subject matter because we loved it so much, but it was just too mean for us to keep and keep playing. And my understanding is Inhabit the Earth is more of a race game. It's less about literally dog-eat-dog, species-eat-species, and this is just more about species trying to optimize their race up the... uh, 
up the food chain effectively in different continents around the world. It looks like it could be really, really great. And Richard Brees has a fantastic track record. So I'm really stoked about Inhabit the Earth. Next up, we have Treasure Hunter, which... Yeah, I don't know. It's actually, it was on Kickstarter a little while ago. I'm not sure uh, when it's going to come out. And I'm sorry, I'm coming a little too late. I, I think the Kickstarter campaign for it is over. Sorry about that, folks. It's from Queen Games, but more importantly, it's from designer Richard Garfield, who, of course, is the creator of Magic the Gathering and Robo Rally and King of New York and all that. And, you know, he is a very well-respected designer with very good reason. He's a really smart guy. He comes up with really clever, interesting gameplay. And this is a game, it's a card drafting game, where uh, players are basically trying to, uh, you know, get treasures, uh, you know, high-value treasures, low-value treasures. There's, I'm not, I don't really know much about it. It seems like it could be cool. But from what little I did read, I worry that it's probably something that's going to be better. It almost sounds kind of like a card-drafting trick-taking game or something like that. I'm not really quite sure. But um, it... I, I just got the impression when I was looking on Kickstarter that it wouldn't be that good with two. And to be fair, Richard Garfield has in the past not always been some particularly interested in, in trying to craft the best two-player experience, like Robo Rally or King of New York, which are really terrible two-player experiences. Uh, of course, Magic the Gathering is a great two-player experience, and so maybe Treasure Hunter will be as well. But obviously, I'm just interested in that one mostly because of the name Richard Garfield. And plus, since it's from Queen Games, it'll be a really spectacular production as well. That's certainly a given. Next up, we have... Uh, sorry. Dingo's Dreams. Which is from a very interesting um, designer-artist combo. It is from artist Ryan Lockett, who uh, you know is the uh, the head honcho of Red Raven Games, and you know he's put out a lot of games. Normally, he designs his games and does the art for them, but here he's taking somebody else's design and just doing the art for it. And the designer is Alf Siegert. And I say I've really enjoyed Alf Siegert's games. You know, uh, Trollhalla and Fantastica and Road to Canterbury and uh, what's the uh, the dice. One with the uh, Cubist, Cubist. Uh, you know, so I really enjoy Alf's games. I really enjoy Ryan's art. So this is definitely a two great tastes that taste great together. And if that wasn't enough, it's a game about dogs. Well, not dogs. A dingo, um, you know, which is an Australian wild dog that is apparently having a dream and has gone on a dream walkabout, and you're trying to help it get out of its dream and wake back up. And you do that with uh, a constantly in motion board that is basically a sliding tile puzzle, which uh, was really a fantastic gameplay mechanism in Forbidden Desert. And while this is not a cooperative game like that, it seems like everything is lining up for this to be an excellent game that Jen and I will really enjoy. Cannot wait to see Dingo's Dreams. Next up. Now, this is a really interesting one. This is not really a game. This is an um, advent calendar. And I assume everybody knows what an advent calendar is. It's one of those calendars that counts down the, the days to Christmas. Every day in December, you take out the calendar and you flip open a little door and you find something in it, you know, whether it's a cute little cartoon or it might be a candy. It depends on what kind of advent calendar you've got. This one is called Brett Spiel Advents Calendar. And it's a big, gigantic box with whatever it is, the, you know, the 24 individual slots that you're supposed to open every day leading up to Christmas. And in every one of them is an expansion, a little miniature, you know, like a few card kind of almost promo level expansion for 24 different games, is my understanding. 
And I got to say, that's awesome. Now, you might ask yourself, well, do I want to get this? Because what if there are 24 games that I hate and these expansions or these promo expansion things are no good? Well, there is a geek list. You can go on BoardGameGeek. You can see what all the games are. And what I did is I looked at the list, saw that there were seven or eight games of the 24. Maybe it was even 10. I don't remember exactly. There, there were enough games on that list that made me say, oh my God, I want that. 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 And so I said, okay, fine. I'm going to get this thing. And what I have done since then, I'm trying very, very hard to put that geek list out of my head. So I pretty much at this point, I remember one for sure, and I, I think I remember a couple of the other ones. Hopefully, you know, I'm going to pick this up. I am not going to open it. I know a lot of people say, a lot of people, it's a real shame. They're on Board Game Geek already. They've already pre-ordered the thing, and they're already engaging in trade, saying, hey, you know what? While we're at Essen, I'll, we'll open ours up. I'll give you this promo. You give me that promo, this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. That ruins it. Buy the thing. Save it till Christmas. Open it up every day. Some days, you'll get something, well, okay, I don't particularly care about that. That's fine. It'll go on the trade pile, and you'll just trade it in the next worldwide um, promo tra math trade, you know, which is a math trade I've been running for years. So you can just trade it away to somebody on BoardGameGeek. And on a day when you open an expansion for a game you like or love that you own, play that game that day. And so uh, the month of December will be a series of surprises as you get to open up. And, you know, and I mean, who wouldn't want to have that experience? It just boggles me that so, and so many people are already playing, saying, well, I'm just going to open it up as soon as I get it, yank everything out, toss the box, and it's just all about the promos. No, no, no. What's so awesome is it's about the childlike sense of discovery and um, wonder throughout the month of December building up to Christmas. I can't wait. I am super stoked for the Brett Spiel Advents calendar. All righty. Almost done with the uh, new games of interest. Aya, or maybe it's Aya, A-Y-A. This is an interesting game to me. I'm not sure. I haven't read the rules for it yet. And I might be jumping the gun on this one a little bit. But I've seen some pictures of it online, and it looks gorgeous. And what it is in a nutshell is taking classic tumbling dominoes. You know, you take a whole bunch of dominoes, and you line them all up in you know, some kind of crazy pattern or whatever. You flick one, and then they all just one after another. You know, just you know, go down the line, tumbling each other, split up, do all that kind of stuff. So it takes that activity, because that's certainly not a game, but makes a Euro-style game out of it. And just that alone gets me intrigued. In the same way that Augustus, or Rise of Augustus, took bingo and turned it into a very, very cool, light, family-friendly, Euro-style game. And it was absolutely excellent. Um, and what else? Oh, Yardmaster took Uno and you know, infused it with theme and made it more of an interesting you know, family-friendly gateway Euro. This seems to be doing the same thing with Domino. So I'm really excited about it. Cannot wait to see more. That's Aya, or Aya, A-Y-A. All right, got one, two, three, four. We're almost done, folks. Grand Austria Hotel, which is... Oh, wait. It's... Who is it from? Oh, gosh darn it. It is from one of the designers of... What do you call it? Um... Sulkin, the Mind Calendar, and the Marco Polo that came out recently. It's one of the co-designers of that game who's teamed up with one of the co-designers of Egizia, which is a very, very cool and clever work replacement game that's been out of print forever and is impossible to get. And it's got the art of Clemens Franz, which I really love. So this is a really interesting... Um, 
uh, you know, pairing up of two very clever designers to come up with a, a new Euro. And quite frankly, just based on that, I'm interested in this game. I, I know it's all about running, you know, a really upscale Austrian hotel. It looks like it might have the same kind of vibe as the feature film Grand Budapest Hotel, which I love that movie. Oh my God, I love that movie so much. So if playing this game kind of reminds me of that movie, I mean, I'm really stoked for it just for that reason. But, you know, the designer pedigree looks really great too. So I'm excited for Grand Austria Hotel. And then after that, we've got, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Hengist? H-E-N-G-I-S-T, Hengist. This is the latest game from Uwe Rosenberg, the designer of Agricola and Glass Road and Gates of Luoyang and some of our favorite games of all time and Mercator and, um, you know, just one of the most famous, highly regarded Euro game designers of the day. And this is a really interesting twist for him because the subject matter here is not genteel farming or you know running economic simulations to try to convert resources into buildings in medieval France or what you would normally associate with Uwe Rosenberg. This is a game of Saxon raiders pillaging villages and taking plunder all around the English coastline. And like, what? This? I mean, that, that sounds like a straight-up crazy Ameritrash game coming from Uwe Rosenberg. And no, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's going to be a very, very interesting, well-considered um, Euro-style game, but with a very lively, vibrant theme that is really outside the norm for him. So, I don't know much about it again, but again, just the name Uwe Rosenberg is going to get me interested, but then such an out-of-the-box theme for him sounds like it could be something really, really special. Okie doke. Moving on. Uh, where is that list? Wake up, computer. Okay. Oh, Morocco. Now, this is from the designers uh, uh, Ben Riddle and... Oh, what's the other... Oh, come on, computer. Knock that off. I'm sorry. I remember Ben's name, but I do not remember the other name. Matt. Matt. Ben and Matt, who were the... Des Let me double-check that. I don't, want, I don't want to be wrong. But they designed Fleet... They designed the fleet expansion. They've designed the new fleet uh, show. I mean, they've designed uh, games. And every one of their games they have put out so far, I have thought, has been fantastic. Yes, Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. There we are. I think every one of their games that I have played of theirs has been great. And that even includes Eggs and Empires, which was an excellent trick-taking game. That one just wasn't so great with two, but it was really wonderful with more. So, this is their latest game, which is... Uh, where was it? Oh, man. I read about this, and I've told... I'm drawing a blank. What is it? Oh, it's a territory-grabbing game. Um, and... You know what? Oh, oh, that's right. Yes. What it is, there is a market in Morocco, and we are trying to set up stalls. But we want to get the best stalls, you know, with, you know, in the best positions for you know, the best scoring opportunities. And the way we do that is there's this little rondelle on the side of the board. And it represents the top of a building. And so every round, which I think is like every day, every market day, we send one of our family... Most of the family members are going to set up the stalls in the market square, but one family member gets sent up to the top of the tower. And he picks one of the spots. I think there's like uh, five spots of this tower, the circular tower. And um, what that will do is... That will, it, thematically what you're doing is, you're looking for the best spots in the square. Mechanically what you're doing is, you're laying claim to rows and columns, to a, you know, a row and a column that will determine where your, um, what do you call it, your, your stalls can be set up. And the interesting thing is, when I choose a spot on this little rondelle to pick, a, you know, to pick the, uh, the stone column or the ruby row or whatever it might be, I don't get that spot. If I put it on the ruby, I don't get the ruby. 
I get the two spaces on either side of it, and all the other players around the board get the space I chose. So I'm getting two spaces, and I'm giving everybody else one space as well. And so my decision making has to be really, really clever and very, very thoughtful because not only I, I want to get the best stuff for myself, but I've got to be careful about not giving my opponents the best stuff for them. And so I think that sounds really, really clever. I'm, it's kind of hard to describe because I'm doing it from memory, but it looks like it's going to be a very, very neat fun mechanism, and that's why, besides the fact that the designers have, have been on a winning streak, they have not failed yet. That's why I'm stoked for Morocco. And then, the last game in my games of interest, and this one in... I mean, Morocco, I think, is going on Kickstarter this month, uh, right? And Hengist, and Grand Austria Hotel, and Aya, and the Advents Calendar, those were all going to be at Essen. Dingo's Dream is probably not going to come out until next year because I think its Kickstarter is over. Same for Treasure Hunter. But the last one I'm going to mention is Adventureland, which I think is also coming at Essen this year. And this is a really interesting game. First of all, this is from Kramer and Kiesling. You know, the dynamic design duo who, whenever they work together, create amazing games that we always love. Whether it's Tikal or um, Palaces of Carrara, these guys just knock it out of the park. They are the masters of beautiful, fun clean, elegant game design. But here's the thing. They always hit you know, all the standard Euro-style tropes. This game is, I'm going to assume, another great example of superb, smooth, elegant design from them, but it is in a land of high adventure. As you are, I believe, uh, well, I don't really know quite, because again, I, I don't want to spoil it. Kramer Kiesling, I'm in. Oh, on top of that, it's not them doing standard stuff like billing palaces in the Italian countryside. Instead, it's a high fantasy adventure realm. Well, forget about it. I'm totally in. And then here's the craziest thing about this game. It's coming from Haba. I don't have a single Haba game because every Haba game up till now have been designed for, you know, basically they're games for small children, like, you know, three to seven year old, like toy games, um, which, of course, obviously are of no interest to me and Jen because we don't have children, nor do we really know any children for that matter. So, and that's what Haba's always done. But interestingly, this year, Haba is branching out and starting to make games with presumably their traditionally incredibly high production values. I mean, you know, some Haba games are just stunning. They're gorgeous. They're, you know, they spare no expense. They are now branching out and making games uh, for families of all ages. I believe these are still going to be gateway weight. And while Adventureland is the most interesting one, there's two other ones that got announced at the same time. One from Rudiger Dorn, and I don't remember the name of it, and I don't remember the other one, although it, that one was about rolling dice and, and ghost busting or something like that. So it's really, really interesting that Haba is kind of turning a corner and trying to expand into this whole new realm of games for ages 8 plus and such. So all these things combined make Adventure Time an incredibly intriguing title that I'm definitely going to seek out. I'm curious about the other ones as well, but Adventure Time is the one that I know I will have. I will not leave Essen without it in my hands because i got to play the latest Creamer Casing. The, you know, the, again, they're just amazing when they get together. I love everything they do. And that was it, folks. That was two months of games of interest. And uh, now we can move on to our next topic after I go have a rest break. Be right back. Hey, everybody. Continuing on with this catch-up podcast, we now have two months of questions and answers to go over. And let's just jump right into it. I've got several ones. I have to admit, I haven't really looked at these very closely, so let's just see what we've got. Okay, first of all, from Jim. 
Who do you feel are some of the more... Oh, I, I, this, I had this question two podcasts ago, and I, I pushed it off because I thought it was a really good question. I haven't given any consideration, and here I am. But I do know what I was going to do. Right, let me read the question. All right. Do you feel, who do you feel are some of the most underrated game designers? Game designers who consistently put out good work, but don't get the recognition or have the popularity uh, you feel that they deserve. And that was a question from Jim, and that is an excellent question. I just didn't want to answer that off the cuff last time, and so I thought I'd think about it, and I haven't thought about it, but here's what I decide I would do. Hold on a second. I am going to go to my profile on BoardGameGeek, because you do that. You then go to Stats. You've got a link. Games owned by designer. So this is a super handy little page. That, I mean, if you're good about keeping your collection up to date on Board Game Geek, you can at a glance see all the designers of all the games you've got. And so I am looking at that now. Let's see. You know, it's just an alphabetical order by first name. And right off the bat, Adam Kaluza. I think he is definitely an underrated designer. Uh, his biggest, or probably his most well-known game was his first one, K2, which was a brilliant game, one that Jen and I still own. And probably uh, the most brilliant thing about it is, both Jen and I hate mountain climbing. Not that we would ever want to do it, but we just hate the idea of it. I mean, trying to get drama out of mountain climbing, you know, movies are, oh my gosh, will, man against nature, will he survive? They always drive us nuts because we're spending the whole movie thinking, you idiot, don't go up there. What are you doing? And it's just very, very hard to engender sympathy or empathy or anything because just the act of mountain climbing is just such a fruitless, dumb endeavor in the amount of effort people put into it when they could be off doing something that betters mankind with that same energy. Ah! Anyway, though, um, at K2, in spite of my open disdain for um, you know, extreme high-risk mountain climbing. We love that game. We think it's absolutely fantastic. And he followed that up with The Cave, which is excellent. I think The Cave made it into Jen's top 20 games of all time. Draco is a very cool little two-player skirmish game, which is cool because we don't normally play skirmish games. And then Mr. House was an excellent game as well, a total departure from him. And uh, a really, really cool game. Although, unfortunately, that one didn't work as well with only two players. You need more for it to be at its best. So but anyway, those are four fantastic games. And yet, most board game weeks, I bet you don't even know who Adam is really, really fantastic. He's a professional. Oh, and actually, I was kind of insulting because if I recall correctly, he did K2 and he himself is a professional mountain climber who has climbed K2. So I was openly mocking him and his passion. I'm sorry, Adam. Forgive me. Your games are awesome. You are definitely underappreciated. Let's move on. Let's see. Uh, and I'm looking for, uh, you know, people that have, have a few games from And this is not scientific either because there's probably other guys. But anyway, next one, uh, Albin Viard, who did Town Center and Clinic and Small City. He cut his teeth making fan maps, I think, for Age of Steam. But over the last few years, he started making some very, very cool games. And they made a small splash, but nowhere near as big a deal as they should be. I think they're great. And Alf Siegert, who I just talked about a little bit ago. Why isn't Troll Holla a bigger deal? Why aren't more people playing Fantastica? Cubist is, it was in my top 10 filler games. Why isn't in more people's top 10 filler games? He's a fantastic designer, great sense of humor, a very literary guy. He really brings interesting worlds to life uh, and definitely, I think, deserves more attention and love. Let's see here. Deep, deep, deep. Um, all righty. No, you're okay. You know Antoine Bauza. Okay, he's more than well known enough. Um, oh, Andre Novak, who has put out 
first Praetor, and then Progress, Evolution of Technology, and then Versailles. That's three games in a row that were good to great. Um, Versailles was only good. I suspect Versailles would potentially be great with... Uh, Three players with two, it's still good. And um, but anyway, we loved Praetor with its you know the notion of retiring your workers, your workers are dice, and um, a Progress Evolution, like the ultimate tech tree game, was great too. We loved both of those games. So Andre Novak is a bit on a roll, and I don't think most people realize it. Let's see, uh, da, da, da. Um, oh, Burned Eisenstein. I love this guy. Uh, the designer, Pelepines. Pelepines should be in Board Game Geek's top ten games, as far as I'm concerned. It is that good. It is that amazing. Everybody should own that game. Everybody should play it. And But he's done other great things, too. He was one of the co-designers uh, you know, of Aliyah Yachta Est. Palmyra is a great little tile-laying game. Pax is an excellent, very, very clever uh, card game. So the only good game I can think of, or the only um, game that works well with two, but that also supports a trader. So you can actually be playing, it's a, um, a cooperative game, but a player can go trader again. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic, wonderful, very clever game. Burned, everybody, he should be a household name in the board game industry, definitely. All righty, uh, moving on. Yeah, Bruno Call, everybody knows who that is. I'm just, I'm just, my eyes are being drawn to, oh, uh, Carlo Levisi. Well, okay, he's only put out two games, at least I know of so far, Oddville and Johari, but they are both fantastic. I don't know if he's underappreciated. Since he's only put out a couple, I'm going to just call him a designer to watch, you know, moving forward. Uh, and the same thing for Cedric uh, Chabouis, you know, the guy who did Lewis and Clark and now Discovery. He's also a designer to watch. But that's not, we're talking about underappreciated. Guys who have been doing it for a while and have not been getting the love. Let's see. Uh, I think Korkinitsu gets plenty of love, thanks. And uh, dee, dee, dee. Uh, as does Donald X. Baccarino. David Short, I think, deserves more love. His first game was Ground Floor. That was fantastic. Planes is really good. Yardmaster Express is really great. He's the co-designer on Bomb Squad. These are all really, really good games. He has just been banging them out one after another after another. Oh, um, the uh, Cypher, another really solid game. I don't understand why he's not more of a household name as well. David definitely deserve, is definitely unappreciated or underappreciated considering the quality and the amount of work he has put out so far. <laughs> uh, da, da. Let's see, I'm just scrolling for guys who have done at least three games. No, you, you, right. Uh, no. Boy, this is exciting for you to listen to, huh, folks? Oh, Jeffrey Allers, another fantastic designer. Uh, the other, you know, with, along with Byrne, was the other co-designer on Aaliyah Yachtes, which is an amazing game, one of our absolute favorite dice games. But he also put out Citrus, which is phenomenal. I've done a run-through for Citrus. you got to check it out. It's a great, great tile land game. Really tense. Really exciting. And then he also did New Amsterdam, which was a brilliant game. Um, not only in its mechanisms but also in its unflinching look at the harsh realities of colonialism. I, I, a really, really brilliant design. I've got nothing but respect for this guy. He's actually done other games, too. I'm just listening to the games of his I own. Um, Jeffrey D. Allers, great, great designer. Definitely deserves his, to have his name shouted from the rooftops. And so I guess that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, no, you're famous. You're famous. No, no, no. You're famous. Um, ah! 
yeah, you know what? I'm going to call out the brands, Marca and Incas brand, the husband and wife design team behind Village, St. Malo, and Murano, and Star Wars Anger of the Clone Krieger, although I've never actually played that, although I do own it. I really need to play it someday. But I think they are really putting out really strong games, one after another after. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, but I believe that Inca is the primary designer and that Marcus is just kind of helping her out or, you know, kind of is like serves as her editor or, or like, you know, her 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 design partner, but the designs are mostly driven by Inca, which is fantastic because there need to be more women designers in board games. And, you know, so Inca is knocking it out of the park, you know, admittedly with her husband's health, but I like I said, I think it's the, most of that's her. And they're fantastic games, really, really smart. And, you know, good game after good game after good game. Although, again, I haven't played Star Wars Anger to Clone Creaker, so I can't say about that one. So, the brands. Alrighty. Uh, let's see. <laughs> oh, I mean, Matthias Kramer. I mean, he made my top ten list. I'm not going to... Right, and the and Kiesling. Uh, <clears throat> no, no, no. Right, I'm to the N's. All righty. And now I'm to the O's. Uh, Paolo Mori. I don't feel like people are shouting his name enough either because he's really special. Uh, Vasco da Gama is amazing. You know, one-of-a-kind game. Uh, Rise of Augustus is absolutely fantastic. And, um, you know, he's also done several other games that, while they're not my style of games, like I'm thinking specifically of Libertalia, they're really, really fantastic games. And honestly, I think he's playing at a... or he is designing at a super high level. This guy is a, or should be a superstar. People should get stoked every time one of his new games gets... Announced, and the fact that they aren't means Paolo Mori, I think, probably deserves a little bit more fanfare. Okay, continuing on. Uh, I think Reiner Canizia, enough people know his name, definitely. Uh, Okay, haven't done enough that's there. Should I mention Ryan Lockett? No, no, no. I think people appreciate him. I mean, he, he people are really starting to notice Ryan. I mean, he's put out brilliant design after brilliant design. And then on top of that, his art is brilliant, too. I think he's really catching fire. So I don't need to call him out. And yet I just did because I, I love his stuff. Um, <laughs> Stefan Feld. Yeah, there's this little guy, Stefan Feld. I may not have heard of him. I think he definitely... Let's see here. Oh, Steve Finn. What the heck? Why isn't Steve Finn a superstar? Oh, you know... I, the, he game after game after game, and he has released what over half a dozen games now, and they are all stellar, fantastic, amazing fillers. Some of the best fillers that have ever been made. This guy, Steve Finn, makes. He's just running his own little self-publishing one-man operation. You pretty much most of his games you have to order directly from him. But my God, they are just amazing. His games are full of stars. Absolutely, I, I'm, I'm his biggest fan, and everybody else should be too. Steve Finn should set the world on fire. Okay. Uh, dun, dun. Alrighty. And no, not yet. Need a couple more games there, buddy. Uh, nope, not yet. Only two games is not good enough. Vito Lasarda, no, everybody knows who he is, so I think he's, he's arrived. But Vladimir Succi. Hmm. You know what? No, I, Vladimir Succi has done some amazing games, but I don't think, you know, he's taking too long to get out games. I mean, in a couple more years, maybe, but I, I think mostly. He's a bit more obscure only because every time he puts out a game, it's fantastic. Shipyard, Last Will, forget about it. But, I mean, come on, Vladimir, more games so that um, you know, I can legitimately... Come on. I mean, actually, he is bringing out a new game. It's kind of a sequel to Last Will this year. So I am excited about that. 
Um, and I think, yeah, there we go. So that's a pretty good list. What do you think, folks? There were some underappreciated board game designers. Go out and buy all their games because they are awesome. Thanks for the question, Jim. Now, let's move on to the next question. Oh, dear. And I copied the question out of email, but I erased the name. So I'm sorry. We'll say this question was asked by Mr. X. Oh, what the heck? Let's have fun. Let's say it was Miss X. Although, nah, it was Mr. X. I haven't gotten any uh, questions from women as of yet. I don't believe. I don't recall. Uh, but anyway, so Mr. X asks, Soon after moving to Iowa last year, I visited a local game store and found a brand new copy of the now hard-to-find Macau for $45. Score! What were some of your biggest scores? Um, in your game collection run-through, you mentioned finding a brand new copy of Star Wars, uh, Queen's Gambit, in a shop in Malta. I think that one is selling for 300 plus now, so that's a pretty nice pickup. Any others? I'm sure you also have many games that you paid next to nothing for at the time and are now quite valuable. I'm glad you asked, Mr. X. And yes, uh, I'm sorry, well, you, you asked the question and then you answered it. You're right. Uh, Star Wars Queen's Gambit, which I got in shrink for retail... Uh, just sitting, um, gathering dust on a shelf in Malta was by far my biggest score. And in fact, for people who are going to Essen, check out the on Board Game Geek the Essen auction. I am finally selling it now, and I don't think it's going to go for anywhere near three hundred bucks. I mean, it's been sitting there. I think only one person has bid on it so far. So you might be able to get it for a screaming deal if you're interested. I just finally realized I'm, we're never going to play it. It's so not our game. I bought it because I had to, but it's just not our kind of game. But other games, let's see. Let me think. I picked up Tuluva. Tuluva had been out of print for quite a while, was very, very hard to find, and I went, um, one year when I went to Gamescom, which is a video game convention in Cologne, Germany, I went to a board game shop that had, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a nice, it was a, it was a tight little shop, and in the basement, they had some overstock, you know, bargain basement prices, and right there, amongst all of them, was Tuluva. At a time when that when it was commanding high prices, I picked it up for like I think it was like ten or fifteen euros, um, which was an amazing steal. I was super stoked about that. That was really awesome. I think that and um, oh oh also I picked up in a in a shop in Spain. I picked up Blue Moon City, which has also been out of print forever and is very, very hard to find. It doesn't necessarily command very high prices, because there's not a lot of demand for it, but it's an excellent game, and I was really happy to find an in-shrink copy for less than retail in this shop in Spain. So that was actually really cool, too. Um, as for games that I've picked up that are crazy worthwhile now, well, I did have a couple of Splatter Spela games, but I've ultimately gotten rid of them because... They're just too big and long. We just don't have the time to play them. As much as we loved Antiquity, it was brilliant. It just wasn't for us. Uh, Key Market. I just picked that up at Essen, whatever it was, three years ago. Fantastic game. Richard Brees is apparently never going to reprint it. It was a very small print run. And now that thing goes for crazy high prices. We love that game. But actually, that auction I was mentioning for Essen, if you want to get a copy of Key Market, check out that auction on Board Game Geek because I'm selling Key Market there. Not because I want to. Jen, I love that game, but quite frankly, kind of need the money. And I can't just, I mean, I, I can't justify, you know, a game that I'll play maybe once or twice a year when I could sell it and make so much money, um, you know, triple or quadruple the amount. I mean, ah, I, I know as soon as it's gone, I will regret it because it's a wonderful, wonderful game. But Key Market is definitely one. Oh, what else? I'm just looking at my wall. Uh, nothing else is really jumping out at me. I'm not really much of a speculator in all honesty. So I think that's probably it. Thanks, Mr. X. Okay. Um, Hurt asks, what board game designers or publishers are most like Peter Molyneux? 
Hurt obviously knows I worked with Peter for several years on Fable 2. Uh, who makes the biggest claims and biggest dreams but can't really deliver? Right, for people who don't know, Peter Molyneux is um, probably one of the most well-known video game designers. You know, I mean, there's kind of a cult of personality. I mean, he's the one of the original game designers who a cult of personality would develop around when nobody knew who video game designers were. Everybody knew who was a video game fan, knew who Peter Molyneux was, and he is infamous for making promises that his games don't live up to. And now, first of all, just to set the record straight, having worked closely with Peter for three years, I have rarely met a more passionate individual in my life. When Peter, said, when Peter talks about what he wants in his games and he's so excited, that's real and that's genuine. And that's why people get excited, because he means it. Even when he is making it up on the spot, because it just occurred to him in the middle of an interview, my God, that would be amazing. Yes, that's in the game. Even when he's making it up on the spot, he believes it and he means it. And so, as much as he kind of drove me crazy when I was working for him. As much as I respected him and I liked him personally, I mean, he was tough to work with. Uh, I, he's very genuine. He's, he, he's, 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 a, he's a great guy, and his passion comes through. Even if, And also, he's always wanting to push the envelope. He never goes for the conventional. He always, and that's probably what I respected about him more than anything else, he always looks to do new and original things, to turn paradigms on their head, and he's great at that. He's great at coming up with some core idea that's just going to capture people's imagination, and it always does. Even if the game doesn't live up to its promise, there's always something that's special and neat in his games. And so, to answer the question of who is like that in the board game industry, I'll be honest, I can't think of anybody, and I think that's a reflection of a few different things. Probably most notably, it's very, very easy for things to go horribly, horribly wrong when you're making a board game, or I'm sorry, a video game, because video games rely on a million and a half factors to come together. I mean, you know, they're incredibly expensive to make. I mean, millions and millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to make these things. Teams of hundreds of people all working in unison and, um, you know, all kinds of publisher influence and, you know, that often is very, very bad and it makes it hard to actually push a singular vision through because, you know, the marketing department wants their say and the producers want their say and all that stuff. And never mind, just the the uh, hard, um, stiff, um, ever-inconvenient reality gets in the way because you run out of time, you run out of budget, etc., etc. You know, things prove to be technically impossible because of hardware limitations. So the thing is, all those things that can conspire to make Peter Molyneux fail to deliver on the promise of his games generally, in my understanding, don't exist in the board game arena because board game design, that's designed to the metal. Everything you're doing is all, it's you. It's you and some cardboard and a piece of paper and some dice and whatever you can dream up, you can make happen. So, I don't see how it's possible that at this point, when games are very personal expressions of an artist's intent, i.e. the designer, I, I, don't, I, I think, you know, they... Uh, and then the other thing, too, board game designers, they really aren't full of themselves. They don't get in front of cameras and talk up their, their next big design. You know, they generally don't talk about their designs at all until it's ready to go. So the industry is just so radically different. Now, that said, I do think there are a lot of designers that share with Peter the desire to really change up the game, to reinvent things, um, and to to not limit themselves, not pigeonhole themselves into one type of thing. Peter is always looking to try new types of games to make, and I re respect him for that. So, you know, um, you ask me, 
who is like Peter Molyneux in the board game industry, my first game, thing, name pops into my head is Vladal Shavada. You know, Vlada Shavadal, Vlada Shavadal, who, like Peter, has a wide variety of a lot of different styles of things he's tried, has an endless, boundless imagination, um, incredible passion, and, in addition, unlike Peter, delivers the goods every time. Vlada games are amazing. And, you know, Peter's games always have the promise of being And to be fair, sometimes they are truly amazing. But, um, so, that would be the answer to the question. Um... Moving on to Kevin, who asks two questions because he's greedy. Kevin wants to know first, you recently mentioned that Shadowrun Crossfire is now on your top ten list. Which game did it replace? I'd have to go look, and I think it was Shipyard from um, Vladimir Suchi. I believe Shipyard is now at my number 11, I think. Pretty sure that's the case. You can go check yourself, though. Just go to http colon slash slash games.rado.com, and you can always see what my top 10, what my top 100, what my top 300 looks like. I always keep that up to date. Question number two. One element I notice seems to be missing from board gaming in general is an ethical component to any game. Video games are actually ahead in this regard, given that so many games, like Bioshock, for example, are Feature an ethical element as a principal factor of gameplay and player engagement. Do you also find this to be true, and why? I don't think it means, why do I find it true, but rather, if I find it true, why do I think that is? I will say that, yes, I think it is true. And that's not to disparage board games. I mean, there are examples of board games that do pose... Well, first of all, there's, there's interesting board games that tackle interesting ethical dilemmas. You know, like, obviously, the poster child for that is going to be something like Endeavor, which is a game that puts you potentially in the role of a slave trader because it's a civilization-building game, and you have the option. One of your choices while you're playing is to, um, you know, engage in slavery. And that will give your civilization a really big boost. Um, you know, and it can help you win the game. But the pr and it's a really interesting situation because other people can do it as well. And the more people start to engage in slavery so they can earn more victory points and, you know, and, and push their civilization to greater and greater heights, the more other people will do it. But there's a, there's a fundamental mechanism in the game where if you run out this particular deck of cards, cards the abolition, or the abolition, um, well, the, the elimination of slavery, I can't think of the word, sorry folks, I'm drawing a blank, oh, I'm, ah. Uh, but, you know, slavery can be abolished. The, slavery can be abolished. And then, if that happens, every player who engaged in it takes a really big hit and gets set back. And every player who didn't, potentially then has the option to move forward. And I think uh, Endeavor is a fascinating game because of that. Because the temptation is really, really great. It's so easy just to engage in slavery and get that really big leg up. And then when other people are doing it, everybody is kind of tacitly involved in it. But if there's somebody who didn't, that person might is going to definitely actively try to bring around about the end of slavery. Forget about the moral implications. They'll just do it because they want to win. And then the players who are involved, they actively take steps to keep slavery alive. And I found myself doing that. And now that is a that's not even a moral gray area. Of course, it's abhorrent to do it. But the game Endeavor, I think it's brilliant for this, actually tries through these mechanisms, to not just take the easy route of saying, hey, yeah, slavery is evil, just stop doing it. Endeavor says, here's why slavery happens. You know, and not just because, oh, mankind sucks. You know, that's really easy to say, too. Here's the real reason. I mean, you know, it's just because of these economic realities that slavery is, about, is able to come out. And I think that's incredible that a game can actually try to be 
educational or inspirational or um, you know, it, you know, and tries to enhance your understanding of a very deep-seated, deep-rooted issue at the core of humanity. I think that's an amazing example. But to be fair, it's an example that's few and far between. And so I think while Endeavor's great, and there are other games uh, you know, that, that pose similar issues, there, there are not very many of them. And I think that's more than anything else simply because video games are way ahead of the curve. Video games have had a vibrant, you know, growing industry now for what? Since the uh, late 70s? You could argue even the early 70s? So 70s, 80s, 90s, you know. So for 30 or 40 years, video games have had the opportunity to grow and evolve and, you know, expand and build on what has come before. Leaps and bounds with millions of people all around the world designing and developing these games and using them not only as commercial exercises, but also artistic exercises. Board games just aren't there yet. There aren't as many people making board games. There aren't as many people playing board games. It's just, and, and the modern designer board game, I, some could say it's been around just as long as video games, but not in any truly meaningful way. It's really only within the last decade that board games uh, have hit the same, well, no, but, I mean, you compare video games in the early 80s to the culture, the cultural impact of video games in the days of Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Space Invaders. Board games haven't even hit that yet. Board games, um, board games are still at the equivalent of Space War. Uh, board games haven't, are barely even where Pong was back in the 70s. So it's, you know, board games have another few decades before they have had a chance to build and mature and grow. And I think that's, at least that's my guess, Kind of my gut feeling as to why video games are ahead of the curve of us in this regard. Um, others might disagree. Ulf asks, out of all the prototypes you've gotten to play, which ones do you still bring out to play in prototype form? Which ones were so good that you got the retail version when it came out? Well, um, I have to admit, I play so many games. I mean, I'm constantly playing new games. I rarely get to go back and revisit games because I'm constantly having to move forward with whatever's new so I can film it for auto runs through. In fact, I can only think of one game, prototype, that we have actually kept in prototype form and that we have actually played again in the prototype form after I've done the run through. Because most of the time, after the run through is done, I take these prototypes and I give them away. Heck, I just gave away two prototypes today to that lovely Estonian couple that visited. Um, just because we don't have the room for it. Where, you know, my shelf is full, my closets are getting full, I just got to move these things. And I don't want to throw the prototypes away because they're good, fun games. So I'm always looking for people to give them away to. The only one we've kept is Area 1851, and that's because Jen loved that game. I thought it was really good, but oh my gosh, Jen loved it so much! Uh, so Area 51, I guess, would be the answer to that question. Uh, and that's not to say that I haven't played a lot of really great prototypes. It's just generally we move them on to make room for the next game. Area 51 is the only one that we've kept so far. As for um, which ones we got the retail version of, oh gosh, lots of them. Too many to count. Seriously, way too many to count. Um, go to, oh, uh, uh, you know, again, go to games.rado.com. You can see every game I own. You'll see a lot of them were prototypes that I had covered. Um, you know, a lot of the prototypes I've done in the last year, I'm hoping to be able to get those games next year. I can't wait to get my copy of uh, Forge War. Oh, must have it. Um, so the answer to the second question is a lot of them. Alrighty. Thanks, Ulf. Moving on to Sam. I read somewhere that you had some involvement with the movies video game. I absolutely loved that game when it came out, and I often revisit it. I just wondered if you thought a second one would ever be made. Plus, do you think a board game version would ever work? Alright. 
Yes, it's true. Um, I worked on the movies. When I got hired by Lionhead Studios, it was actually to spearhead um, the movie's console game on PlayStation and Xbox. And, oh my gosh, that was going to be so awesome. I was so proud of that. That was one of the best prototypes I was ever involved with. It was so much fun. It, you know, it captured all of the depth of, the, uh, of, the, of, of, the, of its big brother, the PC game, but it added a lot of really cool, fun console-specific stuff that was just a blast. And unfortunately, you'll never see the light of day because, to answer your second question, no, there's never going to be another movies. I'm sorry to say. Because, and I, this breaks my heart, the movies bombed. It bombed big time. It bombed so much, it almost destroyed Lionhead. Lionhead almost went out of business because um, you know a lot of their financials were based on the assumption that the movies was going to be the next Sims. It was, you know, um, EA, Electronic Arts, they had the Sims. Activision was going to have the movies be their Sims. And that's what everybody expected. And then it just, you know, it did okay. Don't get me wrong. But it had such huge expectations, expect, expectations that it did not live up to them. And it was heartbreaking. Um, and I have my theories as to why. But, you know, who can ever say? You know, some games were destined for greatness, but something just didn't click, and the audience wasn't there for it, and the movies was definitely one of them. And so, unfortunately, the, the movie's console version got canceled, but that's okay, because then I moved over and um, was the co-lead designer on Fable 2, and that worked out okay, so that was fine. But, um, oh, that was a shame. I, uh, man, that was going to be such a great, great... I'm sorry, what was the question? You're just making me um, get all nostalgic. I absolutely love that game. Or Oh, no, yeah, so there'll never be another one, because I, I don't think... Activision owns the rights to it. They could develop another one, but I doubt they will because it was such a disappointment from a commercial point of view for them. Plus, do you think a board game version would work? Oh my god, it would work amazingly. Somebody make that game. Wow, why not? It should work great. There are some games, like uh, Reiner Knizia has one, that like you know kind of emulate the movie-making industry, but nothing like the movies from Lionhead and Activision, and god, that would be an awesome game. Oh, I would be all over that game. You know, trying to manage your stars and keep them happy, build up your lot, um, you know, try to, you know, manage your budget to be able to make movies so you can win really big at the Academy Awards. It would be perfect. It would be an amazing video game. Somebody make that game and just don't call it the movies from Activision. Oh my gosh. Thanks, Sam. You're, you're entirely right. Somebody make that game. Sam, get to work on that game. Clearly you're a fan. This could be your first published game. Put it on Kickstarter. It'll be awesome. All right. Chris says, your run-through style is so smooth now. Thank you, Chris. It feels like you are one with your camera. Well, that's kind of scary. But in your daily life, have you ever caught yourself acting like you have on camera, uh, like, like you have a camera in your hand doing a run-through? The answer to that is, in my daily life, no. But when I'm playing board games, yes. And in fact, I mean, I can't help it. Whenever I'm playing games, I am constantly verbalizing my thought process. And I'm always trying to stop myself. And you're, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, you guys don't need to. You don't. You don't care. I'm sorry. I'll just make my move. I'll make my move. But um, but what's even worse when it's not my turn and I see somebody else hemming and hawing, I'll start verbalizing their thought process, just like I do for Jen when I'm playing with virtual Jen in my videos. And n nobody's ever gotten visibly annoyed by it, but I got to assume it's incredibly annoying. And I'm embarrassed whenever I fall into that habit. It's a terrible, terrible habit. I'm always kicking myself under the table to stop. But yeah, I do that from time to time while playing. Um, it's not good. Alrighty. Um, let's see. Terry asks... Hey, Terry could be a lady. To the earlier thing of why don't more ladies ask questions. Terry asks, in regard to your reviews you do of prototype games, are they printed by you 
um, or by uh, or the company asking you to do them. Do they ever send you final production copies when they finally release said game? There's been a few games where I printed it out myself. Uh, I did one for Canterbury because I was really excited about that, and Ground Floor I did, and maybe a couple other little ones. But I generally tend not to want to do that because it's a lot of work and it burns through a lot of toner. Oh, I did one for... Oh, I've, I've done it for a few, but very rarely. 95% of any prototype videos you see me do, the publisher sent me that prototype so I could play. Um, as for whether I get final commercial games, I would say roughly half of all the publishers who I do prototypes for end up sending me a retail version of the game eventually. Not all of them, probably about half of them, give or take. And then probably on top of that, I end up buying a few of them if I'm really, really super stoked for it and the, the, the publisher's not going to send me one. But you know what? Often, I, I, it's not something I check because... To have made that prototype run-through, I've already had to play the game several times with Jen, and I've played it in the run-through, and I know if I end up getting that game, it's just going to go on my big shelf of games I never get to play because I'm always playing the next biggest thing. I just keep waiting for that time when I'm going to retire from Rado Runs-Through, and then I could actually play all the games I've gotten that I love more than three or four times before I put it on the shelf and move on to the next thing. Oh, woe is me, world's smallest violin that is now playing for all of my troubles. Obviously, I have no troubles. Um, you know, my life is awesome, and I love Cult of New. I love playing new games. It's mostly Jen who's always bummed that we get all these great games, but we don't get to revisit them very often. Okay. Oh, and then uh, Terry had a second question. Was your top ten nonviolent gameplay interaction mechanisms an intentional counterpoint to Dice Tower's top ten ways to fight in a game? Um, if so, I found it to be highly entertaining gesture without being combative. Well, it's a good question. For the record... That was a total coincidence. There was absolutely, um, you know, I had already had to do my run-through. My voters had voted for it in the previous month. I was already late when I did it. I recorded it. I think the day I recorded it was the day that Tom put his up. I didn't even know he was going to do that. I didn't know that was coming. I still had to put mine up a couple days later. Total coincidence. 100%. Um, if not, which it was not, I found it to be high, a highly entertaining gesture without being combated. Or, I'm sorry, no, if not, I hope you find more opportunities to make these happy coincidences intentional. Hint, Dice Tower Podcast 418, Eric and Tom did a top 10 games to convert video game players into board game players. Maybe a spin on this one from your perspective would be interesting with your, your illustrious video game background. Thank you, Terry. That's very kind of you to say that I was illustrious. I, 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 had a, I, I was a bit lucky, certainly. But uh, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, it was the team. They were always team efforts. I never made anything by myself. Um, I think that's actually an interesting topic, and I and actually it's interesting. I thought, boy, that top ten when I w listened to Tom and Eric's, I thought, man, you guys are totally missing the mark. Time after time after time, they kept choosing games that a video game player would say, you know, you, okay, you put this from me, you made me play it. They would then say, why did you make me play this? This is just trying to do what a video game does really, really poorly. I would, ra I could just play a video game version of this and be ten times better. I didn't understand. To me, that list has to be a list of games that don't try to slavishly recreate a, a video game experience, but do other things that board games do that video games can't. So you're right. I would definitely make a different list. But honestly, after that whole reviewer of reviewers brouhaha, that just, you know, firestorm thing that was just so gosh awful, I don't know if I want to go down the route of giving the impression that I am trying to be critical of Dice Tower, although I just did it. I guess I just reviewed Tom again by saying I disagreed because for some reason I... All right. Sorry. Obviously, I'm still a little bit bitter about that whole reviewer of reviewers thing, so... 
Less said the better. Let's move on to Terry's question number three. Terry, oh, you are so greedy. But it looks like this is the last question of this Q&A, which is good because I'm down to two minutes on the battery. Oh, how exciting. I recently have been participating in the Plaid Hat Games playtesting program. Have you ever officially playtested any board games? If so, which ones? Answer, no. Although, I'll, to be honest, a lot of the prototypes I do, I end up giving the developers a lot of feedback from my experience with them. It's one of the reasons I really enjoy doing Kickstarter prototypes because you know the game is not done yet and I have an opportunity to um, well to help out a little bit and, you know I'm still a designer at heart even though I haven't done it now professionally for years I do enjoy it and so and I enjoy talking with designers and you know make and sometimes they make changes sometimes they don't but there are actually several uh, games that I've done prototype reviews of that the rules for the games have actually changed or been modified or enhanced a little bit based on my feedback I've given during the prototype process. Um, I don't have a list on me. That'd be uh, probably an interesting list to make sometime. Maybe somebody will ask in a future Q&A, because I'm down to one minute. And with that, folks, before the battery on my camera goes dead, we are going to call it quits on the Q&A section. I'm going to go get some more water. I'll be back in a mo. Hold, please. Okay, everybody, hope you've made it this far because you are in for a treat. My last segment is talking about the two recent top 10 videos I did, and I've got a very special guest, Miss Jennifer Ham will be joining me uh, because she was supposed to be in the videos, but not. I think in the future she's going to be doing these podcasts. Now, um, I actually recorded this a couple of weeks ago before Jen went to the UK. I've been all flying solo for, it seems like forever. Jen will be back next week, though. I can't wait for her to get home. Oh, honey, I miss you. But um, we recorded this uh, the day before she flew to the UK, talking a bit about the, mo the two most recent top 10 videos I've done. So, let's uh, take it take it away. Hey everybody, okay, and for the final installment this month, it is time to talk a little bit about the recent top 10 videos I put up. Uh, in August, I put up two of them, top 10 must-have games and top 10 interactive games where players aren't trying to beat each other over the head, or words to that effect. And um, actually, the reason I did two top 10s last month is because well, as has been previously mentioned, Jen and I have been sick as dogs. Uh, things just knocked us out so much. So much so that while Jen was supposed to appear in both those videos, at the time, she was without voice. <laughs> you know, for almost a week and a half, she lost her voice because of this crazy flu. And it's and not quite back yet. It's not quite back yet, but Jen is able to speak enough now to join us on the podcast. Hello. Hi. Honey pie. Hello. So, uh, this will be very, very interesting. So, we're going to talk about two topics. I know Jen has something to say about one of them. I don't know if you have much to say about the other. Honestly, I don't know if I have much to say either. But we'll just give it a try. We'll play it by ear, see how it goes. So, first of all, I'm going to talk about the topic of interactive games that don't require players to fight or steal or any sort of negative interactions. Now, hopefully... You have already watched the top 10 video where I talked about this and did the countdown of 10 interesting gameplay design mechanisms and a whole bunch of associated games. But what I'm going to talk about right now is, well, actually, a bunch of people you know, commented on the video and pointed out various and sundry other gameplay mechanisms. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this game? What about that game? And so I figured I'd talk a little bit about uh, some of them. And honey... Yes. 
This is the one where I don't know if you're going to have that much I to know. say. I know you're sitting there enjoying your tea. Yep, and my beagle. And your beagle. Tula is at her side. Yeah. And so if you if anything pops in your mind, by all means, feel free to jump in. But I think you're really here more for the other one where you have to ask, what was I thinking about those <laughs> top ten must-haves? Yep. Because I didn't quite get all of her must-haves, as you might imagine. But anyway, so let's see where I had that list to. First of all, several people mentioned the interactive element, the, the non-violent interactive element in Terra Mystica, which I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, one person called it an adjacency bonus, although that's not particularly sexy sounding. So how about we call this feature Good Neighbors? Uh, because I actually, I do think it's a very, very cool idea. And in all honesty, I have to admit, when I did the top 10, I totally forgot about this one because Jen and I well, Terra Mystica didn't really work out for us all that much, but I do have to say I love the idea. And so I do think it's worth mentioning, almost kind of as an honorable uh, mention, you know, as a runner-up, because I'd love to see this in other games. The notion, this is a territory acquisition game where players are building buildings in forests and deserts and swamps and mountains all over the board, you know, trying to claim more and more of the terrain. But the interesting thing in this game is players are actively encouraged to build directly next to each other, to be neighbors, because it symbiotically benefits both of them. If Jen builds a building next to one of my buildings, she gets a huge discount on the building cost. I think, if I recall correctly, it cuts it in half or something like that. So a really expensive building, it can really be a lot cheaper to build right next to me. And on the flip side, whenever Jen builds next to me, I get an increase in, I think it's called power, or maybe it's called influence. You know, this particular stat you have that lets you do all kinds of extra abilities. So we, as opponents, as competitors for the very, very limited land on this board, are actively encouraged to build next to each other, and we both benefit from it. And so that's very, very cool. Now, there's a flip side to it. There's a dark side because this is a game where, as you're building, you are also trying to cut each other off and prevent each other from being able to expand into new regions. So there's actually a real cutthroat element to it as well, which was one of the things Jen and I didn't particularly enjoy about the game. But we loved the notion that, hey, yeah, build next to each other. You're actively encouraged to, and it benefits both players in completely different ways. A wonderful system. Actually liked it quite a bit. Would love to see it in other games. So that's Good Neighbors from Terra Mystica. And let's see. Now... The other thing I was going to mention, uh, a few folks made like long lists of, what about this mechanism? What about this mechanism? And it's interesting. You know, um, what about, let's see, where are they? Uh, card drafting or, um, you know, racing or worker placement, um, auctions, you know, all these different types of things, which one could consider to be forms of interaction between players. Now, I didn't include those in the original top 10 because I really kind of think of there's kind of two ways you could look at interaction in this way. There's kind of active and passive. And I was only trying to talk about active interaction because I was really trying to address that top 10 towards people who say, if players aren't actively beating each other over the head, they're not interacting. You know, and so for most people, an auction, which is a very interactive thing, mm -hmm. and in fact, can be a very aggressive interactive thing. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's interesting, actually, uh, totally changing topics for a second. Auctions are something that, it, it's a, they can be very aggressive, and they're probably one of the few aggressive forms of gameplay that Jen and I actually enjoy, that Jen and I actually get into it. Um, you know, the number of times we've been playing an auction game like Peloponnese or Keyflower or whatever, and I see Jen wants something, and she puts a bid in, and she tries to lowball it. <laughs> 
And um, I'm frugal. Yes, she's very <laughs> frugal. And I say, honey, I can't let you have it for that. That's ridiculous. You can't have that thing for two bucks. That thing's worth 20 bucks. And so I bid on it. Not that I want it at all, but only because I know Jen wants it or needs it, and I'm just trying to drive the price up. Now, there's no two ways about it. That is a raw act of aggression. And some people would argue that's as mean as me trying to tear down you know, a building that she worked half the game to, you know, to erect in the middle of the board, and I come along and, ha, ah, I tried to destroy your building. Actually, though, I would say the vast majority of the time when we are doing an auction thing, yes. you will say, honey, if you only bid two for that, I'm just going to warn you. I'm going to, I'm going to bump it up to four. That is a good point. That is true. I mean, actually, Jen, I'm trying to be all cutthroat and say how <laughs> look, I can be really aggressive too. But then Jen reveals, no, I'm a softy, even under lovely. those circumstances. He's wonderful to play with. Yeah, I mean, and it's true. I mean, actually, that's that's a that's one way that we uh, try to get rid of the you know the directly aggressive competition elements of a lot of games is you know if if I see if I know Jen wants to build those fences in Agricola, and she's mm. desperate to do it. But, you know, she gets kind of caught up in something else. Oh, i got to go do this first. Uh, honey, you want those fences, don't you? Yep. Because you know, if you look how much wood I've got here. You if you don't those. do it, I'm going to do it, and you're going to miss your chance. And then I'm going to grab those sheep that we were both. <laughs> so you don't want to miss that. You know, and, and so to be fair, that's, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would, would that's an anathema to even think about playing that way, but that's just in my nature. Yes. And to a certain extent, Jen's nature, although not so much. I am getting better. He's <laughs> making me a better person. I, well, again, people would argue against that. It's, it's very, very true. I mean, that's definitely something, you know, I, many's the time in games when I will actually go out of my way, honey, you know, you're really missing something there. That's a big, big, you know, you're really leaving this wide open for me. I'll do that. And Jen won't. And she'll just go about the game, just kind of playing like, to her best. Ooh, he hasn't noticed this other thing over here. Exactly. <laughs> cackling to herself with her inside, her head voice. And, um, and like at the end of the game, like, geez, why didn't you tell me that? Well, because that was the thing I was going for. I know. And if I told you about it, you would have taken it. Exactly. I would have because I needed it more and I was there first. And... So it is, it is something you know, that, I don't know, I guess my gameplay style has to a certain extent rubbed off on Jen because she does that more now. Yes. She will be a little bit more upfront saying, well, I, are you sure? Really? Are you sure about that? And um, I, I, I appreciate it. It's not a requirement. You know, um, but I do very much appreciate it. Thank you very much, Honey Pie. Because this is actually totally going off subject again. This is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. I often talk about how Jen and I are Care Bear players. You know, we avoid conflict wherever possible in the games we play. That's mostly me. I'm really the Care Bear. I'm the one who doesn't want to attack or destroy. Jen, she's much more live and let die. <laughs> when it boils right down to it, she's much more prepared to be cutthroat. I mean, and, you know, gosh, you never want to play, um, you know, like traditional card games like Rummy or stuff like that with her. She is a shark. Everybody in her family knows no. it. And they won't play cards with her anymore because <laughs> she is just very aggressive. And, but it is something that, you know, the more she's exposed to me in my play style, the more I think she's changing as well. Yeah. Well, I think yours is a nicer play style. Yeah. It is definitely so. Like, I mean, once you can get past, once you can let go of the need to compete and, and win at all costs, I mean, I find it's, it's a much more healthy and positive gameplay experience to not approach the game that way. Yes, I'd agree. Yeah. So that's a, a, I've totally forgotten what I was talking about. Uh, well, um, we were talking oh, about auctions. Yes, I was talking about auctions, which are surprisingly an aggressive thing. 
But as Jen said, really the way we play them, they're not. There's another thing too about them that I think makes them, there's a big difference between me being aggressive to you in an auction yeah. versus me being aggressive to you in a, in a civilization building game. Because in an auction game, when I am making a kind of an aggressive bid, it's not actively taking anything away from you. No, it's you, just making one of us pay a little bit more yeah. than maybe we would want to. That's the thing. You don't have it yet. The, the equivalent in, you know, in, a, in a civilization game of me, oh, you built that castle. That's lovely. I'll just move my troops in and tear it to the ground. Mm. That is something you own. That is something you've invested in and you've committed to and maybe even have a sense of pride about. That is a level of aggression that neither Jen nor I are happy with. Jen is not happy with that either. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't think she would ever particularly enjoy that in a game, you know, even before I kind of rubbed off honor with my Care Bear ways. And so... It's interesting. Did while, you just say you rubbed up off me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> while um, it is definitely true that you know, um, card drafting is another great one, Seven Wonders. A lot of people look at that as a very, very cutthroat game because I'm looking at these cards in my hand. i, I got to take one for myself. Do I take one that's good for me or do I take one that prevents Jen from getting something that would be awesome for her? And, you know, I mean, I won't think twice about taking something that's awesome for her yeah. because, again... She never had it. it what I, I'm not robbing her of something she built and she owns and she cares about. I'm robbing her of a potential thing. And that has, that's, a lot, that's a position on the line for me that I'm very, very comfortable with. Well, there's a lot of games, too, that not only do you get to take something and pass the rest over, you take something and you throw something away and then you pass the rest over. That's true, too. Yeah, so yeah. you might take... So I, you know, for me to actually make a move that's denied you something, I've also... You know, kind of had to pay for that option myself, if that's what you mean. No, I mean that you can take something that's good for you and deny me of something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's totally fair and legit. But I think, again, it comes down to whether it's a card drafting game or an auction game or any of these sorts of, these kind of, because that that gets back to what I was originally saying. There's active and there's, oh, I'm sorry, Honeypie, yes? Oh, well, I just want to say, basically. Okay, she has something to say on this topic after all. Who knew? You. Who? Um, <laughs> that uh, the difference is that in, the, in denying me something or taking something better for yourself or whatever, um, you're still giving me something that I can build my hand with, the be- and I can do the best I can with what I've got. Right. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, yeah. because every game is you do the best you can with what you've got. Yeah. So whether you, whether it's you who are actively building what I could choose from, Mm -hmm. or the game actually only gives us a random selection of cards, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's creating a puzzle for you. Whether it's game systems and game rules that limited what you got, and that's what, okay, this is what I got to work with, or whether it's something I did, from your perspective, it's still the same end result. It's exactly the same thing. So it's not a personal, I've destroyed something you built. Yeah, but you know, in in a game where we're both trying to build something, if it's a game event, oh, we draw a card and yeah, tornadoes have to destroy all small buildings. Well, I didn't do it. The game did it. And then it's it's just an obstacle to overcome. But if it's a case where, oh, I've got an action that I can hold in my hand and wait till the perfect moment and play it. Ha ha, all your buildings are destroyed. All your small buildings are destroyed. Mm. That's a very different thing. That's a very different thing. And you know, and that's just a level Jen and I are not comfortable with. So, and, and, and that gets back to what I was originally going to talk about. The notion of passive versus active interaction. And I think a lot of people who want aggressive games, they want that active interaction. They want to be able to reach out and physically touch or change or manipulate something to do with the other player. Passive interaction, um, you know... 
again, it gets, it, it's, it's more about me affecting the potential of what you can do as opposed to the actual thing. I'm not taking something you have. I'm maybe preventing you from getting something. It's the same thing with worker placement, you know, aggressive worker placement. Although that's something we tend to avoid too. We don't tend to take items solely to prevent somebody else from getting them. True. We tend to take it, you know, it's okay, we don't mind if it stops the other player from getting it, but we take it because we ourselves need it. Yep, it's the best move for yeah. you. The, the, our go-to example is, I don't think either of us, in our darkest of days, in Agricola, would ever say, oh, you know what, I'm going to take those 15 sheep, even though I have no stove, even though I have no fences, and I'm just going to let them go. Yep. I, I get nothing for it. The only reason I did that was to screw you over. Neither of us, it's just not in either of our DNA. Yep. And so that just kind of gives you an idea. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of uh, reflective of how we play. And so back to this list of, you know, very, very good suggestions from people of other forms of interaction. The main thing is, while Jen and I consider those, we consider an auction to be very, very interactive. Mm -hmm. and, you know, potentially even very in your face. Whereas a lot of people don't because, um, well, I'm not actually destroying something. I'm not killing any of your characters. <laughs> I'm not physically doing damage to you. I'm not stealing all your good stuff. I don't even like to kill my own characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Village style. Um, at the, at the end of the day, um, while I, those are great examples of interaction, they are passive. They are not me reaching into your world and actually manipulating the things in your world. Yep. And so that's what my original, this top 10 list was about, was coming up with, hey, folks who really want direct interaction, there are non-aggressive versions of that. You know, like the worker bumping in Euphoria, um, you know, or you know any of the other ones I listed. So while I mean, you know, folks listed a, a lot of really great stuff. Uh, there were there was one other one actually um, that was listed I thought was very very good, and this is a uh, you know kind of a choo choosing to score. And a great example of that is Trombon, which we just recently did a I did a run through for. <laughs> Um, th in that game, yeah, we're still coughing up phlegm. So, <laughs> in, in that game, there's an interesting interactive element in that both players are, you know, waiting for opportunities to score based on what they built. And the thing that can cause that opportunity to score is created not by events. And it's not like every fifth turn there's a scoring round. Scoring rounds happen because of things that players do. And that's an interesting form of interaction. That's kind of a thing where, okay, what I do directly reaches out and directly impacts your world because I'm creating a circumstance where you can score. So that's an interesting one as well. But I don't think it's anywhere near as strong a level of interaction as, say, the Terra Mystica example we just talked about, yeah. where building next to you gives both of us huge benefits, game-changing benefits. So anyway... That was just a little bit more, kind of a follow-up to the original top 10 I did. And I don't know, honey, um, I don't know if you have, if you can think of any particular games that have interesting interaction where, and this is putting her on the spot. I thought for about this for hours when I made the list. <laughs> Jen hasn't thought about this at all. It's okay if you don't, because that's... Well, what's that game that I like with the, the boats and... Um, oh, bloody hell. The boats and yep, and there's islands, and I always go for the little islands first and finish the little. Amerigo. Island. Yes. So yeah, now see that's an indirect form of action. That is a race yep. because there's a finite number of things in the world, and um, we are interacting because well, we would both like to have all those things, but somebody's got to get there before the other. So that's not. I mean, that's not really direct interaction. That's still kind of an indirect interaction. Yeah. But again, it's something that Jen I find while other people would say, oh well, yeah, this is multiplayer solitaire or it's a race. A lot of people say races aren't interactive, but I guarantee you, um, you know, people in um, at the Olympics. <laughs> you know, doing the 100-meter dash, I guarantee you those people are interacting with each yeah. other. Even though they're in their own lanes and they, it's not like they can put, you know, oil slicks 
to you know <laughs> screw with each other. But I guarantee you, they are very aware of what every other person in every other lane is doing, and you know what somebody else is doing is pushing them on towards greatness. That is a form of interaction. And I'm sorry if some people out there don't think it's a viable form of interaction, but to me and Jen, it's a wonderful form of interaction, and yeah. we love playing games. So anyway, so that was top ten number one, and now the other one, the top ten number two, yep, um, which got a lot of feedback. My top ten must-haves. And now I do feel it's worth re- reiterating again. Because some people thought that meant, oh, I'm trying to declare what are the top ten games every gamer should own. And I would never do that in a million years. To me, that is the height of hubris for me to be able to say, hey, Bob, these are the top ten games you should own. Oh, by the way, Betty, you too. Both of you should own these top ten games. And like, no, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely, that is an impossible task to try to come up with a top ten list like that that has any kind of meaning whatsoever. So again, the top ten list was my must-haves. And to be honest, while I was actually thinking about Jen while I was making the list, I was really mostly thinking about myself and, and our playing together. Yeah, but so, you, you're very good about that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, the other thing about it is, that was a very, very important consideration, was, you know, this is it. The only 10 games for literally the rest of my life. And I don't know about folks out there listening, but I tend to make it to 100. I'm planning on it. I'm sure Jen's planning on it, too. Heck, we're planning on 110, 120. We're planning on never dying, quite frankly, because of breakthroughs in technology (laughs) and whatnot. We're going to live long enough to be able to live forever. Um, So, woohoo! And so, (laughs) under those circumstances, only 10 games. This is it. All we can ever play for the rest of our lives that made it a very, very tough list. And that's why I think there were so many big surprises for people who know my show, know my, uh, you know, my preferences, know what my personal top 10 is. Because only a few of my top 10 games made it into my top 10 must-have games. Because they had to be games that were going to hold up forever. And that provided enough variety that even if I never got to play another game for the rest of my life, I'd be satisfied with these 10. Now... Um, there were still, with that in mind, there were, with all those caveats, oh, and plus the other caveat, no expansions. Because honestly, that just feels like cheating to me. To compare this game where, oh, this game, but it has to have all the expansions, well, that's $500 worth of expansions. <laughs> that is not fair to compare that game to this game that costs 20 bucks. That's just, that, that's, that just seemed to be total cheating to me, well, so I said, no expansions. The $20 game maybe hasn't had as much development and thinking and yeah. it, you know, the expansions. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, that game might get expansions in two years' time. So am I retroactively, or no, not retro, what's the opposite of retroactive? Proactive? No. Yeah. Petroactively? Well, proactively. Um, Deciding yeah, no, that that one in the yeah. future is going to be yeah. as good as... Exactly. I mean, so expansions, right out. It's about the base box and nothing else. And that was the other reason that some key games didn't make my list. Probably the number one pe- um, you know, pe- thing that people were taken aback by was, where's Agricola? Yep. Where's Agricola? It's my number one game on my, t- my top 100 list. It's Jen's <laughs> number two game. And yet it didn't make my list. Why didn't it do it? Well... One is because no expansions. Quite frankly, if I could say expansions, it probably would have. It would, it definitely. Yeah, because there are so many cards. And it's actually interesting. Every time Jen and I play Agricola, we very rarely use the cards that come in the box. Um, because honestly, those are not our favorite cards. There are so many amazing cards in the Gamer expansion and in the, uh, the Championship expansion and in Farmers of the Moor. Not having those cards, just living with the base cards, don't get me wrong, it's still great. 
I still absolutely love the game. I don't know if Agricola would be my number one game in the world without all those expansions because mm-hmm. there's just so much. You know, particularly because if you're if you're only ever going to play Agricola with a two player game, half of the cards that come in the base game you have to throw away because they're only for three plus players. So that was one big thing. But then the other thing that was really interesting to me, um, and I didn't realize this at the time, uh, somebody else pointed out to me online when they watched the video that I put no worker placement games in this top ten. That was not a conscious choice. I, I didn't set out saying, right, i got to have a worker placement, but I didn't also say, right, forget worker placements. It just didn't work out that way. Um, and that really made me stop thinking, because there's a lot of worker placement games I absolutely adore. And I think the only reason worker placement as a genre, as a gameplay mechanism as a whole, did not touch into is because, by definition, worker placement... Um, well, you, know, you have a board. And these are all the worker placement spots. And pretty much from game to game, it's going to be those same worker placement spots. And I'm not going to say that makes a game stale. Um, you know, I'm not going to say you can't get 500 or 1,000 plays out of a game. But I do think implicit to the fundamental structure of a worker placement game, and there are some exceptions to this, there's probably going to be a little bit more... I, I think it's going to tend towards sameness a little bit more. And a worker placement game has to work, has to go above and beyond to really kind of avoid that. And quite frankly, when I was making this list, I couldn't think of any worker placement games that went above and beyond enough. And so that's why many worker placement games that I love and adore and are in my top 10 and my top 20 and my top 100, none of them made it. Now that said, I think that's a good enough segue because <laughs> Jen has something to say on that topic. I think... Um, if he gets his top 10 games for us to play for the rest of our lives, I should get my top 10 games. Are you prepared to make a top 10 right now? Of course you're not. No, no, no. But I'm just saying, although I like a lot of your choices, um, there's no way that Dungeon Pets would not be. Exactly. Dungeon Pets. And you know, Dungeon Pets is her number one, it's my number two. I did not put it on the list for broadly. That worker placement thing I'm talking about. Dungeon Pets is amazing. And of course, there's a million and a half permutations of how that game could work out with all the different pets and all the different tournaments. And every time you play, you're going to get different customers. Forget the expansion, just the base game. There's so much. And every turn is going to be, you know, tense and exciting. And as, as you reveal, and where did I put, where am I going to send my imps? Where are you going to send your imps? It works great every time. Plus, it's adorable. And it's got, it's got so much character and charm and personality. You'd never think you'd say that about a game with poop, but... <laughs> well, the poop is charming, too. It is charming poop. <laughs> um, you can't not be charmed. Yeah. Much like I assume um, new parents are charmed. Oh, look who did a boom boom, you know, with their baby and stuff like mm. that. You know, the parents can look at their kids taking a... a anyway, moving yes. on. Enough with the, with the fecal... This is not Fecal Matters, the podcast, oh. at all. So, um, you're right. Yeah, I mean, Dungeon Pets was another one that got brought up quite a bit. Why is Dungeon Pets not there? I'm only trying to describe why it didn't get there for me. Yep. But, um, you know, Jen did watch this video. And actually, I think this is my only top ten you've ever watched, quite frankly. Well, I hear you making them. So well, I that's true. Really but So, you them. did go back and watch it after the fact. And afterwards, you had... To, well, first of all, you yeah. said, hey, where's Agricola? Well, yes, of course, because we both love Agricola so much. But... It's true that the base game is not as replayable, I think, as a lot of the most of your other choices. Yeah. And while Agricola has a very special place in my heart, mm-hmm. um, as an without the expansions, I, I mean, you don't disagree. I don't without disagree. the expansions. Yep. Right. So, and then your number two was where is Dungeon Pets? Of course. And then your number three was I love Roll for the Galaxy. And your number four was 
Now you're not going to remember. We talked about this last night over yeah, dinner. Yeah, we did. Um, oh, it's Sulkin. Yes, Sulkin, the Mayan calendar. Yes. So that's interesting. Um, you know, two of Jen's three. You know, and Jen said, you know what? For the most part, your your list is fine. I, I'd be happy with it. Hmm. But where are these? Where is Dungeon Pets? Where is Sulkin? And where is Roll for the Galaxy? And a Gricola. I mean, but although we we talked about right. that and we came to an agreement on it. Yeah, and so Dungeon Pets, I can say why it's not there. Zolkin, the same thing. Zolkin is an amazing game. It's so clever and so brilliant. But I'll be honest, Jen loves it a lot more than me. I, I like it a lot. I think it's a great, great game. Yeah. For Jen, it's, it was in her top ten. It wasn't in my top I ten. I love my gadgets. Um, now, okay, so but you're saying you are confident Zolkin the Mind Calendar and Dungeon Pets will stand up to 1,000 plays. Well, to the one of the only 10 games you can play for the rest of your life. Okay, well, we discussed the numbers yesterday, remember? Let's just say we got... I was kind of tuning years. out when you were discussing the oh, numbers, but okay. Oh, you do that when I do numbers yes. talking. Well, but basically, if we've got 15 years and we've got 10 games, right. that's 50 plays a year. Okay. That's once a week we play the game. And I think, yeah, once a week... Or maybe we go and we play it four days in a row. We have a little spat and then we don't play it for four months. Mm. So, yeah, I think those other games that I've brought up are something that we would enjoy for the next 50 years playing once a week. Okay. All right, there you go. So there you have it, folks. But actually, that I, I read books again. So I like... Mm, that's true. I like a renewed experience. We have a huge library of movies we love. <laughs> I never watch them a second time. The yep. only reason we have them is because Jen likes to get them out. Jen will read a novel a third, fourth, fifth time. Yeah, I used to read Lord of the Rings every year. Yeah. Um, and me, I'm, I'm, I'm always cult of the new. I'm always like a shark moving forward, wanting new stuff. So I think for replayability for me, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that Dungeon Pets once a week for the next 50 years I'd be able to do it. I, I think I, it would wear out its welcome for me. Um, and I think it's it's not the fault of the game. It's not like Dungeon Pets isn't amazing. It's not like I'm not happy to own Dungeon Pets. It's not like it's my number two favorite game in the world. But I just don't think it would have the legs for a lifetime commitment like you do. But I think you and I have different thresholds. Now, here's the interesting thing, which Jen was not prepared for. Sorry, you got these three. He's pointing at I'm me. I'm literally pointing at you. Now he's pointing at me with three with fingers. Three fingers. <laughs> All right, so if you said, for the most part, my list was fine. What three are you pulling off that list to move those no, three I in? No, I can't do You got to do it. No, you can't. must do it. No, Here's the list. I, I even have it right here. Let's talk about the list. Yeah, and by the person. way, folks, this is total spoilers if you haven't watched the video. Um, now, I mean, there's some that are, I think are going to be pretty easy for you to but, but drop. But do you remember last year when you made me do my top 10? I couldn't even do that. I had to do my top 26. Yes. Or How am I supposed to get rid of 26? You're saying of a none of these list. 10 or this list right here. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, you're not even going to remember what all these games are. I am. I know which all these games are. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, I like Jaipur, but I know it's just a short filler game. So, to me, I would rather have Dungeon Pets than Jaipur. Now, so, uh, interesting, Jaipur was on my list in large part because I wanted to make sure we had a filler game. It was the only short game on my list. I understand. And you don't feel the need for a short game. This is interesting to me. I'm learning something about my wife. Well, Paperback is a short game. It's, yeah, I suppose. So the paper actually at least a half hour, 45 minutes, really. Okay, well, one Unless of Unless things two, just go really if bad. If you make me choose, one of those two would have to go. Right. Okay. To make room for Dungeon Pets. All right. And actually, the other one can oh, go. Oh, now she's starting to rip things out, folks. Yeah, here we go. Um, I Roll Through the Galaxy is, is, I, is more enjoyable to me than both of those. Uh-huh. So. so you've dropped Jaipur and Paperback to make room for Roll for the Galaxy, Dungeon Pets. But what about Zulkin? What about those big gears? I do love my gadgets. She's staring at the list. Um, 
See, now I'm surprised you'd keep that one. Shadowrun? Yeah. I, I keep it because I love you very, very much. <laughs> See, I'm the one who... Jen likes it. Jen enjoys it. Yeah. But I'm head over heels in love with yeah. it. And... But that's fine. I mean, so you would take that off, if not for me. Well, no. You would, you would replace I, that with Sulkin. I enjoy playing it with you very much. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't want so to So you that would off. keep that over at Sulkin? Only because I love you so much. <laughs> but I think if everybody gets their top ten games, why don't I get mine and you get yours? <laughs> because that was the arbitrary rule. It's not like because we're a marital community, we get our top 20 games we get to keep for the rest of our lives. Because the whole thing was, these are the 10 games, not only the 10 games you can own, but the 10 games you get to play. Because I was really trying to make it tough. Oh, well, but you, that's not fair, because you said you, you had some games in here that would be fine for people coming over and playing with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, those people that come join us are only ever going to get to have those three games on, on their top 10, too? Because everybody in the whole They're world... They're not making a list. I'm making you make a list right now. <laughs> and you're making a list for us. Oh, and you're dropping paperback, and you're dropping Jaipur, the the two close, the, the two fillers, yep. to have more big long games. So that means I gotta take that that you value short games less than me. Um, quickie little, yeah, we can just bang this out in fifteen twenty. Well, minutes. no, Ro- Roll for the Galaxy is a quickie game. That's a good point. Actually, that's a very true point. I mean, we play Roll for the Galaxy. It is a fifteen minute game. So you're right. You're uh, by tr- replacing Jaipur with Roll for the Galaxy, you're tracing one and really. Roll for the galaxy every week for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, several easy, times a week. I love it. Exactly. And you don't see yourself ever getting tired of it, even without expansions. Ever. Well. I mean, we have played every one of those tiles. I, I know it's not possible. I feel like we've played it in every single combination because we've played it so much now. But you're still confident. Of course, the dice are different every time, yeah. no matter what. No, I, I, I just think it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, but you didn't make room for Zolkin, so you're dropping Zolkin. I'm surprised you left that one. Oh, it's that's so charming. Mm-hmm. Although, actually, yes, you're right. If I had to choose between CV and Zulkin, I'd take Zulkin. Yep. All right. Well, there you hear it. You heard it there, folks. So, um, so Jen's list. She t- popped those three to drop those three in, and that's her top ten. Um, <clears throat> also. Just on the topic, since a bunch of people asked, uh, uh, there were a couple other ones, the topics that came up quite a bit. Jaipur, why did that make the list over Biblios? Fair question. Uh, Biblios is great, quite frankly. Biblios deserves to be on the list more because it ha- provides more flexibility because it does play up to four players, whereas Jaipur is only a two-player game. Um, I think they're both excellent. They both have similar play lengths. They're both equally clever. They're both equally compelling and infinitely replayable to me. For what it came down to is theme. I feel the theme of Jaipur more. It's those darn camels. <laughs> those camels are fun. And I'll be honest, you know, and, and those chips and how satisfying it is. I mean, that's not to say Jaipur isn't a handsome production. I love the box with the magnetic class, but... And, and to me, it is a thematic game. I should probably do a thematic rant about how Biblios is actually a very thematic game, but um, not as much as Jaipur. Jaipur has a magnetic clasp? No, no, no. Uh, Biblios does. Oh, you just said Jaipur. Oh, oops. Yeah. Um, that's why I make goofs all the time, because my head just goofs. So, I mean, but that's why Jaipur over Biblios. Uh, another one was, and this was probably the next to where's um, Agricola. This was the second biggest question, asked question. Really? Forbidden Desert over Pandemic? Really? Yeah. Are you asking that question now that I verbalize it, honey? Well, Pandemic has a very special place in my heart. Of course, yes. Um, 
But every once a week, every week for the rest of your life, would you rather play Forbidden Desert oh. or Pandemic? Well, pen, how many people, how many scientists um, role things come in? The um, I think they're comparable. I think maybe, pan, again, without expansions, I'd have to look. I think Pandemic maybe has eight and Forbidden Desert has six. They're pretty close. Um, but I think Pandemic maybe has one or two more, maybe. Okay. Well, I just remember we spent two weeks in the camper van, and every night we played Pandemic. Well, that was our first designer game ever, so you have to throw that. If, if Forbidden Desert would have done the same thing to us, I think, if that was the game we happened to have in that camper van. No, I don't think so. I think really? Oh, so Jen's I saying... Think Pandemic is a, a deeper experience. Yes, I agree with that. I would definitely... Pandemic is a heavier game. There's no choice about it. The puzzle is more challenging to solve. Yeah, definitely. Now, and you value that over, for lack of a better term, the gimmick oh, of Forbidden Desert. I really like Forbidden Desert. Yes. I'm... That's ultimately why I did it. It's, it's, I mean, I would, I would think you could almost say objectively that Pandemic is the better game. Um, it is the richer game. It is the more stimulating game. It is the more interesting game. It is the more flexible game. But um, I think there's Desert a lot more interaction is... with it, too. What? Pandemic. There's, because you have to discuss the strategy and all yeah, that. Yes, and it's the more interactive uh, you know, amongst teammates. Yep. Forbidden Desert is the more fun game. It is very fun. It is just silly, wacky, screwball fun. It is an action movie, whereas Pandemic is a drama. Okay. Quite frankly. Yeah. And that's what it came down to for me in trying to evaluate these things. And again, you know, this was um, against the rest of the list. You know, don't forget, I already had Shadowrun Crossfire in there. So I already have an insanely deep, challenging co-op that we'll keep, we will keep struggling with um, to try and stay alive for the rest of our lives. We'll never master that game. So I don't think I needed Pandemic for those purposes. Um, uh, but, you know, Forbidden Desert, it's just more fun. It's more alive. The fact that, you know, and Pandemic is alive too. I mean, well, it is literally replicating a, a virulent strain spreading across the world outside of our control. Yep. There is a life to it, but... And we're getting rid of three fairly light games. Well, you are. I'm not. <laughs> I, I thought we were discussing our top ten. <laughs> well, we'd have to go into, I think, a deeper, longer discussion then. <laughs> I think you have made your counterproposal and we'll stop it right there oh, on the negotiation phase of this particular game of life. I think I'm life. packing my very own bag and you can pack yours. There you go. <laughs> but um, I do think at the end of the day, Forbidden Desert, it is, like I said, the, the games both come alive on the table. You know, Because they, they both really... On, on, there are two sides of the same coin. They are the same game, just a different flavor. Uh, you know, Matt Leacock just leveraged the pandemic system, did something new with it for Forbidden Desert. But I just love the fact that the world is alive, that the world itself is moving, that the world itself is an active force. Not some agent inside the world, i.e. four different viruses, but the world itself. I just love that sliding puzzle. Yeah. I, it's just it's sweet and charming and adoring and fun and, I, you know... Just love it to death. So that is for me why Forbidden Desert made it over Pandemic. And let's see, I mentioned the Jaipur Biblios thing. And um, actually, I think those were the main things. Oh, one other thing. I know a lot of people are like, oh, come on. How could you put Glory to Rome and Twa on here? Because those are impossible games to get because they're out of print. And I'm sorry about that, folks. But what can I say? I already own them. And so, uh, but you know, I mean, again, coming back to this whole notion... If this thought exercise were the real deal, if we did, in fact, have to have only 10 games for the rest of our lives, under those circumstances, I don't think it's unreasonable to pay 100 bucks for a game. 
Nope. Um, which is what's going to cost you to buy to get a copy of Glory to Rome. Why is it that we can't? Somebody isn't publishing Glory to Rome. Oh, there's a whole big story. Um, it, it's it's a it's a legal licensing rights crap? legal issue mm, thing. Yes, I I, and that's not to say it won't someday get reprinted. I mean, I believe it probably will eventually someday. I know Twa will. I, not not I shouldn't say that. I have no inside information about Twa, but I would put money on the table that by Essen next year it's going to get a reprint. I, I, I there's just no way that's not going to happen. It's too good a game. Um, you know. The developers, you know, recently, I, I know it's a different publisher, but they did a reprint for Carson City. I'm confident Twa will get a reprint, probably another expansion someday, because there's just no way they're walking away from it. It's too good. There's a chance Glory to Rome will never get reprinted. And I know there's Uchronia, and I know there's Matainai, you know, both from the same designer. You could try to get them instead. But I mean, we haven't tried Matainai yet, but Uchronia is like nice. And I guess if we never played Glory to Rome, we'd think it was nice, but. You know, we've tried it now, and it just really didn't float our boat. We'd just rather be playing Glory to Rome. And honestly, I do think Glory to Rome is so good, it's worth 100 bucks, And that's crazy to say for basically just a deck of cards. It's, it's insane to say it, but it is that good. And I can only hope someday it does get reprinted. But, um, you know, if I ended up, you know, chasing it down for 80 to 100 bucks on eBay or something like that, I think I would not feel cheated having picked it up and played it. What, honey? Do you remember that game we just recently got? It was because it was in a foreign language and somebody had taken the time to... Um, Kashgar, yes. Kashgar, Handler der Siedenstrasse. Okay. Yes. Anyway, we got all of the cards and it had come from some yes. other manufacturer? Yes. It, it, um, there are a few... There's probably many, but there are a few different services you can use online where you go on their website and you design your cards, you make them look like whatever you want, and you pay them a premium, yeah. um, and they will send you those cards, and they're super high quality. Yeah. Um, I, 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 a print studio, I think, is one. I forget the name of the one that we got. The But anyway, yes, there are these services. Well, are you asking, well, anybody could... Yeah, anybody could do that, but that's total piracy. Um, oh, right, because it's... Yeah, because, I mean, you know, the, co- the rights are owned. But yes, anybody could play... Glo- I mean, heck, anybody could play Gordon Rome by just getting whatever it is... 120 Magic the Gathering commons, putting them in sleeves, writing down by hand what all the powers of Glory to Rome are. But yeah, you, you want to have the real game. Yeah, you want the whole... Yeah. Um, but anyway, all I'm saying is I do think it's worth it. Uh, and quite frankly, if you work at it hard... I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that are really trying to price gouge. You know, paying a, a charge 140 150 200 bucks. Take a shot. See if they'll if they'll if they'll give you give it to you for seventy five. Negotiate with them because I guarantee you they're never going to sell that dang thing for two hundred bucks, even though that's what they're asking for. <laughs> yeah. Say, look, that's crazy. I will give you seventy five cash on the nail today, and I'll even pay the PayPal fees, and maybe they'll sell it uh, because you know they will come to their senses. I do think it's worth it. That said, if I couldn't get it in its place, I probably would have thrown Race for the Galaxy, probably. I probably would have thrown roll, in... Roll, roll for the galaxy? <laughs> or race for the galaxy? Well, now we're back to that whole negotiation thing. But anyway, <laughs> I think that pretty much covers the two top tens of August. We'll be back again uh, next uh, podcast for whatever the next top ten will be. I don't know if Jen will be back or not. Would you rather do it this way, honey, rather than actually appearing on camera to talk about this top tens? This is so much nicer. So Jen will be back in next podcast as well to talk about whatever the next yeah. top ten is. And uh, that was it, folks. Hey, top ten corner. Oh, wait. Jen maybe, has some closing people thoughts. people would like to hear a top ten with expansions. <laughs>
yes, I a suppose Gricola, so. Agricola, baby. Agricola. I think they're, well, yes. And for people who would like to make suggestions, they can go to guild.rado.com and there is a thread devoted to top 10 suggestions. In fact, actually, I, made, I set this up. You can go to top 10, http colon slash slash top 10.rado.com. That is a thread devoted to people making suggestions of top 10 topics. By all means, if you have one you'd like to see, go there. Check the first post because there's already a list of like 70 that I got to do. But if you've got one that isn't there, make a suggestion. Maybe we'll take it on and that'll be a top 10 at some point is in the future. Is it top 10, the word, or top 10, the number? T O P 10 dotrado.com. All right, folks. Thanks, Honey Pie, for joining me. My pleasure. All righty. Now we got to get back to packing. Yes. Okay. England calls. Okay. How was that, folks? Was that exciting? Did you love hearing Jen? Well, I believe you'll be hearing her in the future talking about other top 10 topics as they come up. Although, unfortunately, I have to say, you'll not be hearing her next month because next podcast, number five, will be an Essence special. Just like last one was a Gen Con special, now I'm going to do an Essence special, a full episode devoted to talking to all the games that I am super stoked about uh, at Essence 2015. Probably go up, I don't know, a week or so before Essen goes live. You know, derived from uh, Eric Martin's excellent Essen preview geek list on Board Game Geek. So you can look forward to that coming soon. And otherwise, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. So long. Bye bye.